Beverly Cinema presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. So it's January. Time for fresh starts yes. and debuts. Yes. A clean slate. <laughs> exactly. So what better person to come on and talk to us about debut films than someone whose only film I haven't seen is his debut <laughs> film, <laughs> which somehow he was happy about for now. Uh, welcome, Sean Baker. Hi, how are you? It's Good. great to be here. Yeah, we've it's talked about uh, since like even I think year one, even though we didn't know if you would know what the show was, we had talked about trying to get you because we had knew you were a real cinephile. And uh, when I after I saw you enter the Criterion Closet today, I really knew <laughs> you were one of us reaching for Repo Man yeah. for all. <laughs> well, it's 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 great to be here. I'm also, you know, I, I subscribe to your podcast. I'm a fan and uh, I'm a listener. That's so awesome. it's it's uh, that maybe a first <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? have a listener on? yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know that's happened. i know larry karaziski is a good talker but i don't think he's listening <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's some people that are just not podcast people yeah. you know it's a certain kind of uh person that likes either has a long commute or just likes to have podcasts in their ears and i i'm assuming you're yeah i i have probably uh i i, I don't know how much i'm actually just listening to my environment anymore. <laughs> it's like I'm having podcasts pumping some into my ears. Well, you've done a bunch. Times. You've done a bunch of. Uh, I, I heard you on the Malton show, and I think you were on the Filmstruck podcast. I don't remember. Oh that. yeah, I did yeah, that one. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, so you're, you're, but, uh, you're you know, it. I'm also a fan of your, uh, you know, just the discs. I'm and honored. I'm honored. Waves. Um, so uh, let's go out and get a beer. Forget <laughs> <this>. <laughs> let's do that. And also, I really enjoyed the last two episodes that you guys did. The Thank discoveries you. and. Um, just the new Bev calendar oh, yeah. one, nice. which I'm, you know, I'm which not you're going to be invited on, by the way. We, yeah. You're actually the first name that came up for that. But then we thought, well, let's just get an episode with it and make sure you enjoy doing it. And then anytime you want to come cool. on that. Oh, great. Because it needs to be somebody like we realized with that show, it has to be people who are well versed. Otherwise, it's going to yeah. be a very short conversation. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm, I'm actually I'm only in L.A. for this week. Oh, cool. So I know. We're taping earlier than January. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. December, but um, but I'm seeing the Russ Meyer double feature. Oh, okay, yeah, I've been thinking about going to that. Too, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, we haven't seen yeah. motorcycle. No, I haven't either. And uh, this will be my only. You know, I'm 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 actually kind of now that New Bev is back open, I'm uh, kind of jealous of this. You know, Angelino's being able to yeah. take in all those beautiful 35 millimeter prints. Yeah, <laughs> it was a great it was a great opening. Butch Cassidy print was just you're like oh my god. Wow. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten what it was like to see a nice fresh 35 print it's been a while yeah. <laughs> i don't get out much yeah yeah but um i i will tell you i'll confess one thing when starlet came out because i hadn't that was the my first introduction to your work okay uh i thought that was your debut film back then like oh, okay. and so when i saw starlet i was i mean i i, I think that's a really terrific i'm a huge harold and Maude fan oh. and so when i saw starlet i was like oh, it kind of feels like that's I, I was getting certain a vibe from that film again and then of course i start digging deeper and go wait a minute there's a movie before that then there's a movie before that and actually there's a movie before that yeah, uh, yeah i'm on my i just yeah six features actually nice. but the first one's pretty like i mean obviously it's not because we're lazy and not doing our research it's actually really tough to see right now for a letter yes and and for anybody out there who's interested in it just wait a little bit longer because it's being restored right now it was shot on 35 so as you know restoration right now is is wonderful you can scan the negative at 4k and go back to the original elements and so we're doing a deluxe restoration a film that i don't know 
truly deserves it because <laughs> really? you know it's a young i was very young when i, I yeah, made, how, how I, old were you then because uh, it must have been i i think i wrote it at 22 23 uh-huh. and wow. made it at 24 so you're right out of, out of nyu okay. yeah yeah wow. so you know it's a film that uh probably needed all these years for me to you know it it, it, it actually premiered at south by southwest um in 2000. All right. Wow. It took me a while to actually go so through. You're pre that film's pre-Mumblecore. Yeah, but you know what? Matt Dentler, who was yeah. running, who was programming uh, South by at the time, who's now at Apple, uh, you know, iTunes, yeah. um, he uh, considers it a Mumblecore film. Mm-hmm. He was like, this is an early Mumblecore. And it does have that, you know. Well, it seems like you're right, because I watched the clips that were available online, mm-hmm. and it seems like it was bridging between, yes, the 90s clerks and things, voices yeah. like that, Slacker. Right. And then what would be, it, shooting on 35 is a big distinction because all those films are really also the birth of digital in a lot of ways. And, yeah. Uh, oh, interesting. So, yeah. uh, what, so it's, 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 almost, it's almost done, and it's going to look a lot better now. So don't look for those. <laughs> it did have a DVD release. Okay. okay. And uh, Vanguard Cinema put it out. Oh. And, uh, are they still business? No. <laughs> and uh, and so, but don't seek it out. Yeah. Just wait, wait for a good wait, window. Wait, yes. um, so tell me a little bit about like just because uh, I'm I'm constantly fascinated by people's first film. The a what gives you the gumption? How you pull resources together? You know, especially mm. pre digital because mm. you have to shoot on 35. Uh, what kind of films you were seeing at the time that influenced you to make that as your mm. debut? Well, it, I saw it as very much of a. I think it was very influenced by Jarmusch mm, nice. and very influenced by Mike Lee, although you won't see it in there. It'll yeah. seem more like a Kevin Smith film to right. you. But it's like a social realist Kevin Smith film. Yeah. And this was something that Maybe I Mulrats. just... <laughs> yeah, right? Um, it's uh, something that I just felt, you know, this is something that... It's probably the film that's the most personal to mm. me, meaning that I was basically basing it on my uh on my friends uh mm. and uh and and transcribing conversations that I recorded and wow. uh and you know it's it's a look at the I always like to say and this is like a serious take on it but it's like a it's a study of the male psyche in suburbia USA yeah the 20 year old yeah yeah so it takes place literally at the last hour of of a party uh, which you know I thought was kind of different you yeah. know to show the the stragglers uh <laughs> sitting around at the, this suburban party and um yeah learned a lot on that um and uh looking back on it it's a very young film again yeah. it's a ve- it shows that i was inexperienced and also lacked life experience yeah. see that's the big thing about sometimes First young film, films yeah. you don't you, you don't have a lot to say at that <laughs> right, yeah you're, you're basing it on cinema right for a lot of cinephiles yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well it's interesting because that you go pop from that starting with what you know and then every film pretty much after seems like worlds that you couldn't possibly have known that well until you maybe explored them right they felt very foreign almost mm. like foreign films yeah. the, you know which is it, mm. it's interesting i, I did want to ask because I, I did hear in the criterion um clip that which yeah. made me laugh because I can really identify with this which is you said I went to film school to make Die Hard but then I you yes. know saw Romer and started to change. was it was it as uh, was there a real significant change while you're at film school in terms of the, the kind of thing you yes. felt called to I would say most definitely living in Manhattan was like just uh, you know you're, it was a an education onto itself, you know, just being Where in, you're from? Uh, well, I'm from Jersey, oh, but okay, yeah. being in Manhattan, you had all the repertory cinemas at the time, you know, you had uh, Kim's video at the yeah, time, which had it. every title, you know, and, and at the time it was also, you know, Mike Lee hit with Naked, Jarmusch and Spike Lee were like heroes, yeah. you know, so it was really changing my limited 
you know, uh, I, I only had access to the, the, the classics of foreign cinema and indie cinema. It wasn't until I was actually, you know, in New York and being able to, you know, see whatever I wanted to where I could start exploring all the French New Wave, all the Italian neorealism, the, the British social realism, yeah. because this is be before the Internet. So yeah, right. your only access was like good video stores or, you know, uh, those retrospective theaters like the Anthology Film Archives, Bleecker Street Cinema, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Lincoln Center. Yeah. You know, yeah. But was it as distinct as because I had I had a moment in a film class where it was a movie I didn't particularly get. It was Machete. It was my second year in film. I hadn't seen a press on film. That's yet. a tough movie, and it is a tough movie. And and it was like I was largely bored throughout. And then it ended, and it washed over me mm. like nothing I'd ever. That felt That ending before. is mm. something and, else. And, and it made me think about it afterwards. The form of it, and then I started reading, you know, notes on a cinematographer where he took where he's talking. You know, you don't have to be all eye on all ear at the same time. These right. kind of notions. Oh, movies aren't the same thing to everyone. Mm. That even the way you can stretch them. Yeah. Was, was it, like you meant you mentioned Romer, but was was there a couple specific movies? Well, it was Clara's knee. Clara's I what. I went. I, I remember just strolling over to the library, which is uh, on on Sixth uh, Avenue and Eighth Street, which is like the Clock Tower Library right there. And they had a you know you could rent VHS tapes. I remember picking up this VHS box, and it was this beautiful shot of a girl's knee. <laughs> like, okay, um, yeah, I'm going to give it a try. And next thing, and I was just really. I don't think I had really. Um, I've only I was only exposed to the classics of French New Wave. I I really this was something different for me, and this was very that that meditative sort of uh, you know uh, just character study and exploration. And I just found it fascinating, and I decided to go down that road. You know, um, yeah, yeah, because so, so, <laughs> well, because art cinema. I mean, at that time, I guess you would call it art. Uh, mm. That's it's hard because Cassavetes. I wouldn't have called him art cinema, you know, but now right. looking back, you would classify yes. him as such, yeah. which is weird because yeah. the times have changed so much. But, mm. you know, but I had no access to Cassavetes besides Gloria oh, before getting to NYU. Wow. Gloria played all the time on HBO. Yeah. But I didn't really know much about Cassavetes at all until yeah. I, I uh, was at NYU and just started renting yeah, all the so titles. so kind of, un well, not, I want to say unrepresentative of his filmography, but definitely different than yes, the early stuff, definitely. you know? So. So is there a, a key Cassavetes film for you that, like, really? I, I have a husband's poster on my wall. I think that's the one for me. It's, it's that scene with the, at the bar where yeah, it yeah, keeps yeah. going and going, exactly. and you're like, oh, my God. Yes, yes. The and chemistry's incredible by that point, though, because these actors know each other so well in their lives. You know, Falk, him, Gazar, they're just yeah. Yeah, unreal. But I, I, I feel like Cassavetes is so interesting because I feel like as you change that movie, you can warm to different titles. Like, Love Streams lately, the last few years, has been the one I was going to say that's about the other it's one. so mysterious in a way. Yeah. You know what? That was the one that never stuck with yeah, me, yeah. and I know, and and I have the criterion, yeah. and I have to really now, all these years later, I think I have to give it another chance. Yeah. And and sorry if I've offended no, anyone no, out you know, there. This no, happens no. to us all the time. I yeah, actually had the same yeah. response the first time I saw it, yeah. and, which was a very like, I just, uh, this isn't something's not. Mm. But coming back yeah. to it recently, it may have been literally like the canon, <laughs> yeah. like budget and the way that <laughs> right. they imposed production on him. That's you know? possible because it seemed like he was shooting on sets for the first time. Yeah. Oh, well, right. I hadn't thought about. That it's definitely unusual in yeah. those other filmography. There's something about it that like seeps through, and, and then it's, I guess if you ever see that little documentary about him making that, that is really powerful because he is actually suffer suffering mm. his illness, and you mm. see this guy just laying it. He lived what he said, you know. Mm. You put it all out there on the screen. It's in, always inspiring. Right. Um, so we're talking film debuts, yes. uh, which is exciting. Before we get into the bulk, were there any other? Uh, because you you picked a specific way to approach this, which will be fun. But were there any? 
hugely influential bigger films that you might want to get out of the way before if they don't come up well when you first approached (laughs) me about coming on the show and talking about debuts of course i was just going to all the the classics the go-tos so i had like you know night of the living dead and of course citizen kane and Eraserhead and kids and sugarland express 400 blows and the the deepest dive being pusher yeah you know i thought about Um, pusher too when i yeah I think that's still his best. It's <laughs> pretty great. Um, and, and it's still not as good as the scene in Pusher 2 where he talks about video stores. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I, I like Pusher 2 a lot. Yeah, Pusher 2. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, weirdly enough, never saw the third one, even though people I said mean, it was it's, good. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Interesting. So, you know, those were ones that are, I'm sure everybody thinks about. Yeah, Night of the Hunter is another one. Oh, Anything yes. with Night of, you, yeah. <laughs> you call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, so these shows, obviously, if you've listened, uh, which you said, you know, you obviously have, we do try to, because it's, you know, you want to acknowledge those, but it's also mm. like, you know, we also want to find highlight a couple things right so people can discover and I, I've definitely one thing from having followed you over the last couple of years since discovering your films is you seem to you know really put in the time to see new films from different cultures different countries yeah. um, which is hard to keep up with I think without having a I, I feel like LA hasn't got a great international film festival no, AFI doesn't. is solid cause yes. it's, but it happens very quickly and it's competitive to get in there but mm. it's I come in New Zealand. We have, I think, one of the best international film. Every film from every country is represented at that festival. And did I tell you about my my experience there? Oh, no, did I went you go to travel. Down? Yeah, I oh, spent two weeks, and did I you went meet from Bill? Auckland. Yes, Auckland to Wellington, and I loved it so much. And that's where I got the inspiration to uh, make uh, Tangerine. Really? And if you look at the end credits of Tangerine, I thank probably the entire team of the New Sibilla, Zealand Bill Galston, yep. all my... Oh, see, yeah. I've had two things play there back in... Oh, I lived there, so. very cool. But that was, again, mumblecore type stuff from that right, time right. So that's... But yeah, no, it's really... It's, it's a great so festival. well curated. And, and it so, comes right after Cannes, so it gets all the Cannes titles. And I always felt spoiled. I didn't realize until I got to L.A. where mm. they're really... I was just like, in the L.A. Film Festival just went away, the mm. indie one. So it's very... Mm. I feel like there's some... Uh, there's a niche to be filled, you know, yes. in the city. But... Um, so, so no, but I, I'm also lucky enough to be asked to be on a lot of juries lately. Mm, so nice. I'm taking them in. I just was in Mumbai. Great oh, programming. Wow. Before that, there was Locarno, which I was on the jury for. And, and so it, it's uh, I get I get to see a lot that way yeah. too. But no, I I think it's important for filmmakers to to keep up on what's new. And I don't understand why a lot of filmmakers are resistant to yeah. it. And and I speak to some older filmmakers, and I won't say who, but you know, it's big names, and they say, oh, I've stopped watching films from anything after post nineteen seventy eight. Mm. I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> there's like, there's like. There's been progress <laughs> since then. And especially some of these countries that pop up out of nowhere. I remember mm. when, when it happened in um, Romania, when yeah. the Romanian new wave popped up. I was floored. Year after year, I'd see like two or three films coming from this country that right. you'd ha- it's scarcely heard of. Right. And suddenly they had their own cinema. Yes. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it, and so technology obviously changes that. Exactly. Globally, yeah. 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 Very cool. Mm. So we will. Uh, well, let's kick off with you, and you because you're you're going to pick some. We all have probably totally different approaches. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll just basically tell you about my approach. I, I I thought that I would highlight some debuts from like the last ten years that I thought haven't gotten the attention they should have gotten, and uh, and some of these directors you'll know, and some you won't. But yeah, let's start off uh, with. Let's see. Let's go consecutively here. Uh, 2010, um, our day will come. Ma chevelure vous irrite, je la laisserai pousser. Mes actions, mes attitudes vous dérangent, eh bien je les amplifierai. Et quand enfin, sous la pluie de vos sarcasmes, 
je resterai indifférent. Et que je pourrai enfin être celui que je dois être. I think the, uh, Patrick finds in, uh, in Rémi, Patrick is very bored and very disillusioned and has no taste and he finds you know, something that he can play with, with the, the, the young one and something that uh, with Rémi and that has, uh, you know, energy. And Rémi finds words with Patrick to his anger. And basically, uh, Patrick is the big mouth that can, um, that's gonna say crazy things. And Rémi is gonna be the, the one that's gonna go for the action. That's Roman Gavras. That's oh. Costa Gavras' son. Did not know that. Oh yeah, he's great. He's look him up. He has his own Vimeo channel, and uh, the film stars Vincent Cassell and Olivier uh, Barthelemy, I believe his name is. And um, have you ever seen the MIA video "Born Free"? It's a, an incredible music video. Okay, okay, check it. This is like the full length version of that music video. Oh wow! And it's uh, I'm just going to read the description real quick. The outcast, red haired teenager Remy is bullied at school and lives with his estranged mother and sister in France. The also red-haired psychiatrist Patrick befriends Remy and helps him to release his repressed hatred and sexuality. When Remy sees a picture of red-haired people in Ireland, he forces Patrick to travel with him to his dreamland. See, in this world, redheads, gingers, are, are outcasts. At first, at the script, they were not even redheads. They were just true outcasts. And to make them redheads, it's, it just makes them more iconic and... Uh, and also they're like a, a visible minority that doesn't exist. So I found it interesting to crystallize them like this. Wow. And it's really uh, wonderful. And, and, and Roman, he's, he's known for his music videos and commercials, but he also has a new film that just hit Netflix called The World Is Yours. Oh, okay. He's very much into Scarface, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's good. Yeah. It's great. You should check it out. It's, it's probably not as good as, uh, in my opinion, yeah. as our day will come. But um, it premiered at Cannes last year in uh, Director's Fortnite. So is, is Our Day Will Come, is it stylized? It sounds like a, an yeah. alternate vision of the world? or um, it's, it, it has that reality. It's based in reality. It's not too overly stylized, but it's obviously a made-up world. Okay. And, um, and he has sometimes some music video aesthetic that yeah. comes through, but not in an annoying way. Yeah. Okay. He's he's very talented. Um, Oscilloscope had a, they have it here, but it's such a minor release. I had to get an import because mm. it took them so long to put it out. Wow! Um, How did something it, like that get on your radar? Because I was because of his music videos. Oh, wow. He did music videos for MIA and for uh, Justice that got a lot of attention, and uh, it premiered at Toronto back okay. in 2010. So it's definitely worth seeking out. And very I think cool. Oscilloscope probably sells it on Amazon or something like that. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or not. Totally off my radar. So okay. I yeah, appreciate I it. Didn't know he had a son. <laughs> I love it when uh, t the talent is passed down. Yeah, uh, I have one from 2010 Go as well. It. So uh, I went. So I just picked like I was trying to in my approach. I just went with like kind of visionary films that kind of knocked me out when I saw them. Uh, we've talked about a ton on our previous episodes that like uh, some of the ones that I would normally like. Sexy Beast is one that knocked me out. Oh, Killer yeah. Sheep, oh, yeah. Reflecting Skin, uh, Caitlin Varga. Uh, oh. Badlands. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the ones we've talked about oh, in great. other episodes. Uh, but reflecting skin, reflecting oh, such boy. a great. You know, that's of all the films yeah. I've seen in the last like fifteen years. That's one that's really stuck with oh, me. Yeah, now that movie is, and it holds up. It, yeah, uh, Cine Family played on thirty-five one night at midnight. So I, or, you know, I hadn't seen it in a few oh. years. Sat there going, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's gorgeous." <laughs> it looked gorgeous. Um, but this one's uh, from Australia, and it's uh, it's the Animal Kingdom by uh, oh, David yes. Michaud. Hey, Josh, I've got some bad news, mate. He knows the bad news. 
Is everything okay here? Yeah, everything's great. You all right, man? He's fine, Mr. Lecky. Josh, I'd like you to come down to St Kilda Road with me, if that's okay. Hey, what's he done? Tell me, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure he gets disciplined. You come with me, Josh? Well, what do you want to talk to him about? Talk to me about it. We'll speak to you again at a later time when we're ready. I might, um... I might have some information for you about those two murdered police. I've been asking around a bit and... There's a few theories floating around, but I don't know if any of them are true or not, but... Might be able to help you with your investigation. Oh, thanks for that. Will you come with me, Josh? You go, love. I'll call Ezra. Go put your shoes on. I'm not currently in a position to discuss what happened today, but I can arrange for counselling services to visit, should you require any. Hope you find the killers. Yeah, so do I. That era of the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, which was like the end of armed robbery as, as, a, as a serious profession for criminals, you know. Mm. You know, that, that era of hardened gangs of guys who, who, were, who were incredibly good at what they did mm. and treated it like a job. And, and you know, and um, commensurately this, this portion of the police force that had to deal with these guys and was, and was therefore itself, you know, very hardened and, you know, and, and therefore, you know, the, the guys who were basically doing the, the most da hardest, most dangerous job in the police force, which mm -hmm. was dealing with the hardest and most dangerous criminals. And mm -hmm. the end of that era, you know, the end of bank robbery is a thing, you know, I kind of wanted to explore the effect that might have on a family of emotionally damaged yeah. kind of people. In this film, I started while still living there, um, or maybe I was back on holiday, but, you know, I'm a huge fan of Chopper. I think Chopper's mm. one of the other best film debuts. Andrew mm. Dominic, uh, still my favorite of his movies, weirdly enough, even though most people would go to, you know, his epics. But um, yeah. this film, it felt like watching Australia's Godfather. It felt like, oh, wow, somebody has made a sprawling gangster family crime saga in Melbourne. It's somewhat tailored after... Uh, a real family that had similar crimes. I think mm. there was a couple murders of police officers investigating. Yeah. But people don't realize that Australia is quite a gritty. Mm. If you watch their cinema, you'll get because most of them are crime films or yeah. uh, you know a lot of drugs, heroin, shipping, uh, underworld kind of stuff. But right, the right. performances in this movie, uh, this is the movie that confirmed to me that Ben Mendelsohn was a major, major talent. Yes, I'd seen him in a lot of uh, TV in Australia and Idiot Box when I was a long time ago. It was an Australian film, but I never, never saw his intelligence. He always seemed almost like a dumb, mm. like the dumb jock kind of character. And this is the movie where he plays a, a very off-balanced uh, brother of this crime family who is kind of uh, quickly, his head been in hiding for uh, a crime. He come, he's, His nickname was Pope. He comes out of hiding and basically him and Joel Edgerton are old buddies and um, their mom, who is played by Jackie Weaver, who's mm. just like one of the most villainous uh, elderly woman you've ever seen on screen. Uh, they're you know they've been committing uh, you know these armed robberies and really kind of at war with the cops. Things get escalated. There's an incredible twist in the first like 30 minutes, which really shocked me and really uh, kind of moves this film along. But then it becomes about uh, their cousin. I think he's their cousin. He's young. He's like a 17 year old kid who's lost his mom and he has to come live with them. So he quickly is being indoctrined into this crime family. And then Guy Pierce, who's a good cop, one of the mm -hmm. few straight cops is trying to get him to turn on the family 
and also try to help him avoid going down that road right. himself. And so everyone has the fascinating motivations, but it really is this like sprawling film. And Mendelssohn comes in as basically he has a, uh, you know, he has depression problems. He has like mental problems mm. and he's like off his meds and he's wearing his Hawaiian shirt and he's kind of dancing in slow motion. And you're just like, all right, now this is cinema. This is what movies can do for a character. It's not yeah. just the acting. It's like, it's all these things combining. Uh, it's it's a really great movie. It's, it's, it's always a bit of a shame to me when something gets watered down for TV Obviously, it's a popular show now here. Mm. I haven't seen. I like watched a little bit. The casting seemed interesting with mm. Alan Barkin, mm. but it's hard to see something that was so gritty and kind of um, or real in the Australian film then become glossy and right. an American TV show. So I, I won't. You know, it might be a great show, but I would really recommend people go see this movie first. Uh, a lot of people might have seen The Rover, which is also really good. Yeah. He made the follow up to that. I haven't actually seen his new. The War Machine, I think it's called, with Brad Pitt, and it's a Netflix film. Oh, yes. It looked the film very that different. basically got buried on Netflix. Yeah, it yeah. looks so different from his other stuff, right. so maybe more of a comedy. But uh, if you like crime films, I, I put this on par with great American crime films of the 70s. Like, yeah. It's one of those films that would slot wonderfully into that world. So, And it introduced a lot of names to the world. I mm-hmm. mean, I didn't, I only knew Guy Pierce at the time, mm-hmm. I think. And right. uh, what, Joel? Joel Edgerton's fantastic. It's, yep. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, Great yeah. Film. But Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn's become—I mean, he's now become the Mister Bad Guy, right? In American movies, but mm. it's, when you actually see him get a juicy role, he is mm. a hell of an actor. Oh yeah. Um, and I did see him once at, at, at a urinal. I do like the story only because of his accent. I love your urinal stories. I saw him and I went out right up to him. It was at the Billy Wilder. Yeah, yeah. It was right after I saw this, and I said, yeah. "Oh, I just have to say, you're so good to get." Yeah. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> I, I saw him come in and just say hi to the crowd before a uh, private screening of Slow West. Oh, yeah. And he came across as like the shyest guy. Yeah. Just like I hope, hope you guys like it, and yeah. left the room. And uh, I was like, "That's Ben Mendelsohn." It's great when people like that become famous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Um, all right, I'm going to go way back to 1960 for mine. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Jerry Lewis's debut film, The Bellboy. Here is our star, the man who will deliver us from TV, and once again having the theaters bursting with laughter. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Go ahead, Jerry. Show us some of the funny things that uh, we've been talking about that are in this picture. Go ahead, Jerry. Some of them kind of stiffen up a little when you ask them to ad lib. (laughs) Thanks, anyhow. Come with me. I'll show you myself. Yes, indeed. This will be much easier. You'll see some of the scenes and, uh, well, roll it. Go on. The Bellboy, filmed completely in Fabulous Miami, where Bellboy Jerry turns the fantastic Fontainebleau Hotel into his own private madhouse, tangling with the bags and the babes. Those beautiful Miami models in the altogether delightful situations that only Jerry can cover up. It's a series of silly sequences. The visual diary of a few weeks in the life of a madcap who makes for fun. Which I still haven't seen it. Well, you know, it's I, I got into him, I want to say, maybe only about a decade or so ago when I was showing my son Marx Brothers movies. I was just, and he was digging that. I'm like, well, what else can I do? And I had seen The Nutty Professor and, and uh, maybe The Ladies' Man. I can't remember, but... I was like, let's do let's do Martin and Lewis, and so we started going through the Martin Lewis comedies, and we went straight up through 
all his stuff, and my son loved him. Um, for what those age that was your son at the time, he was. Let's see, he's nineteen now, so it, he would have been like nine or ten, I think, yeah. somewhere yeah, in there. That physical comedy. I'm always curious when they can get that. You know? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I think I started with the Marx Brothers, so we started with the cerebral slash. Or, you know, I guess more verbal yeah. than cerebral, but uh, slash physical. And then we went into that. But for those that like Jacques Tati, I, I've never heard Jerry interviewed talking about any kind of influence. But obviously Tati was making films in the 50s oh, okay. that are very much this. This movie's more or less plotless. It's, you know, the, really? <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's I'm intrigued. A, yeah, it's just a collection of vignettes. It takes place at the Fontainebleau Hotel in uh, Miami Beach, Florida. And uh I guess Jerry got the idea for it on the way to the, like in a cab on the way to the Fontainebleau where he was going to play some dates. I made a film called Cinderella and I made it specifically for a family audience. Christmas, I made an album. I put a fortune of money into it so that the album indicates to the child what the movie's about. And you play this game and you have a baton and you conduct the orchestra and you do all of the stuff that I believe children love to do. And uh, I go to New York to meet with Barney Ballerin about a contract that we were talking about. And he said, you know, I hate to do this to you because I know how you feel about Cinderella, but we're going to have to release it in July. I said, hold it, Barney. We had an understanding that this was a Christmas picture. He said, but Jerry, we have to have a Jerry movie in the summer. I said, well, you don't have a Jerry movie in the summer, and you're going to take something that was slated for Christmas? I can't stop you from doing that, but I'm going to be very unhappy. He said, well, what can we do? I said, I'll get you a movie for the summer. He said, where are you going to get it? I said, I'll have it ready. He gave me dates. I had to deliver to him so, May 25th. <laughs> we were meeting on January the 3rd. Wow. I left him. I went down to Florida that night. The next night, I'm opening at the Fontainebleau in the La Ronde room. And I do two shows a night for two weeks. Before I opened, I had written 26 pages. And by the time I was into the eighth day, I've had a 162-page screenplay. I called Hollywood, sent for a crew, had everyone there within probably 72 hours. And I rolled the next day. But that's how it happened. I did two shows a night for two weeks. And when I finished the engagement, I had six more shooting days. We finished shooting, I went to Las Vegas to appear at the Sands, and I brought my entire editing crew to Las Vegas, and we worked down in the musician's room, turned it into an editing room, and I edited and put together the bellboy in that room in Las Vegas. And Barney Baldwin had the prints May 25th. But it even has like... It has like an introduction by Jack Crucian, who was the doctor in the apartment for people that remember that movie. But he does this whole introduction where he's basically saying this movie has no plot (laughs) before they get into it. Hello. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Jack Emulsion, the executive producer in charge of all productions made here at Paramount. And before showing this picture, I felt I should at least explain. The motion picture you're about to see isn't the -the run-of-the-mill film fare that has been presented to the movie-going public of late. Now, it's quite easy making this type of picture, filled with love, emotion, and tears. And, of course, we could easily make these space, violence, and horror films that are enjoyed by many peoples of the world. But we chose to make what you're about to see, a film based on fun. 
and it's just a little different. Insofar as there is no story and no plot. That's right. I said, no story, no plot. It is actually a series of silly sequences. Or you might say, it is a visual diary of a few weeks in the life of a real nut. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's just a, a whole bunch of, you know, a collection of little skits taking place at this hotel. And, you know, there's a lot of sight gags. There's some jokes with famous people where, where like, Jerry shows up as himself in the movie. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Back. Hold it. Back. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Stop with the brushing. Now, we've been together a long time. I've asked you many, many things, and you've come up fat for me. But now I'm asking you to hold it. Stop pushing, stop rushing, just hold it. Now, we're all adults, and I'll expect you all to conduct yourselves in such a fashion as an adult will. Hold it. Now, I've never asked you this, but I'm asking you now simply, purely, hold it! I'm a nervous wreck, a nervous wreck. Let me have a cigarette. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. A light? Do I have a... Yes, sir. All right. All right. All right. All right! Mm-hmm. Hold it! Stop with the brushing! Let me have another cigarette, please. I'll smoke it dry. I'll smoke it dry. Yes, sir, Mr. Lewis. Uh, Milton Berle plays himself. You know, there's these little things that they do, but a lot of it is just um, goofy comedy that you probably would only see come from Jerry Lewis in a lot of ways. It's just weird stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. But I like it. It's It's good. It's a good, solid debut. I like... Uh, the Nutty Professor and Ladies Man and the Patsy more uh, as films, but it's a really good place to start, I think. Uh, and it's pretty widely available, you know, just streaming, you know, wherever. And I think there's a DVD, unfortunately. There's no Blu-ray that I'm aware of, but but it's a good start. Definitely a good start for him. I'll check it out. <laughs> Top of the queue. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm I'm also going with an Australian crime film okay, good. from the year the next year shot by the same DP who who shot uh, Animal Kingdom. It's called right. Snowtown. Oh, I'm John. Hey, you doing? You're right. Pretty good. Nice to meet you. I've had a gutful. I'm always sitting here. Some little kid's being touched up. What do you think about that? I don't think I should be doing that. I don't think I should be doing that, do you? You want to go up again? Yeah. You're a national, mate. <laughs> you think your mum's going to like this? Oh, probably not, but who cares? <laughs> Do you mind if I stay over? Of course, mate. You ever shot a gun before? Feel good? So why not do something about it? resolution of darkness is not always this kind of definitive answer where everything's resolved I think that and, and with this case there wasn't I mean it, 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 it's, it's similar to kind of Haneke's films I guess as well where you know you 
the, the monster or the kind of violence and kind of, I guess, why it's happening is really not the important thing. It's how the characters interact with that. Um, and to me, that was always the most important, important thing in the film. To me, the redemption in the film is, I guess, the, uh, the fact that the story is being told with a, a very, I think, very strong human element in it. And that there's a perspective in this story that uh, is being revealed for the first time. So, but I, I never felt, and Sean and I never felt as though uh, we were, you know, would suddenly go, oh, you know, and that's why it happened, and you know, and and this is what we can learn from this. You know, it was really about allowing an audience to discover that and to think and debate that, as opposed to me kind of giving it to them on a silver platter. And in fact, I'm still thinking and discussing that and debating that in my head and how and why this happened and what redeeming thing we can get out of this. But I think if it's honest and it's there's truth there and it feels like a really, you know, uh, authentic observation, then, you know, hopefully people can come up with their own defining uh, resolutions about uh, why and how it happened. And that yeah. performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Snowtown is from 2011. Here in the States, it was released as uh, The Snowtown Murders. I think IFC put it out. Uh, Directed by Justin Kurzel, who went on to direct Macbeth and Assassin's Creed. And he has like a film in post now. And he has another biggie coming out. I did not put those other two films with him. No, it's so weird. Yeah. yeah, But um, it's, it's a gritty, it's tight. It's it's a really disturbing film. Yeah. It's basically about Australia's most notorious serial killer, right? And the people he takes under his wing yeah. and manipulates. And again, I'm just going to read the IMDb little uh, little synopsis here. Based on true events, 16-year-old Jamie falls in with his mother's new boyfriend and his crowd of self-appointed neighborhood watchmen, a relationship that leads to a spree of torture and murder. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it's not sensational in the way that makes it sound, right? That's the interesting yeah, thing. It's, exactly. It's the opposite of that. Yeah, it's, it's grounded in reality, which really makes it a tough watch. Yeah. And uh, there was this moment where I'm watching it and I'm really just, it's, it, there's a, there are a couple of very brutal scenes in this film, just a warning to those yeah. people who are squeamish and, or anybody is yeah, going yeah, to be disturbed yeah. by this it's movie. Like, it's like Henry in that sense. Yes. It's not for everyone. Yeah. Oh, they, wow. they, I mean, they show the murders and they hold on them. And uh, there's one in particular, which is just so incredibly disturbing, but so well done in terms of craft, filmmaking craft that you can't deny it. And I remember I was on the couch watching this thing and my my partner, my girlfriend was just next to me and I was like, you know what? Um, and she wasn't watching. She was doing something. She was working or something. And I go, you know what, uh, Sam, don't look up the television, right? <laughs> just just uh, continue doing what you're doing. She goes, no, I can tell because I'm listening to the sounds and I don't want to look. <laughs> oh, and I go, don't look. Oh, don't wow. look. And it really stuck with me. And I think I had nightmares about this. Oh, wow. I'm talking about the... You know, it's not a real spoiler, but it's no. it's a tub, yeah, the tub yeah, scene. Yeah. And anyway, um, yeah, that DP, his name is Adam Arkapaw. He went on to do uh, a True Detective season, and he yeah. did The Light Between Oceans and uh, Animal Kingdom. And they shot it on 16. It looks gorgeous, Super 16. It's amazing. And uh, the only other thing I was going to say about it is that I heard about its premiere. Um, I think it played can, but... It also showed at the Adelaide Film Festival, which is where the murders took oh, place. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that the 
it won the audience award, but I hear from people who were actually there that it was one of the worst premiere screenings ever because it w- hit way too close to home. Yeah. I mean, they were there, yeah. and it did not go over well. Now, that's what I've heard. I, I don't know. Maybe somebody What's, out there is listening. Do you have listening. the name of the lead actor in that one? Who plays mm, I don't. I, it just, it's, he's somebody a friend of mine was looking at casting him recently, and he's so good. Yeah. It's like, if, again, it's the thing about if you have a truly charismatic performance, mm. you can watch almost anything, you right. know, no matter how grueling. doesn't mean you like like them, but yeah. you just you can't not watch them. Right? And, uh, yeah, that's that is a tough tough watch. It's sure. also quite an ensemble. I mean, yeah. like, and and I think there was only one. Uh, that lead is the yeah. only professional. Yeah, everybody else was like first timers from that area, mm-hmm. and they do. They're wonderful faces, absolutely wonderful faces. Yeah, and do you do you find yourself a little more uh, attuned to that just because obviously you were, you've been working quite a lot in that fashion, like working mm. with a mixture of actors and non-actors. Mm. Uh, when you see it in another film done in that way, do you kind of... Th- I was really impressed. Yeah. I was like, th- he nailed it. Yeah. He got that docu-style down absolutely yeah, perfectly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of docu-style, I, you're giving me segues because 2010 <laughs> and now docu-style. Uh, a film that I saw at – the reason why uh, international film festivals are so great is if if you're the kind of audience member who will just go to something without knowing much is you have no idea what you're in store for. And I saw one film that I've never forgotten. I only watched it again last night to, to, to see if it still had that power, and it was um, Dog Days oh, uh, yeah. by director Ulrich I was gonna, Siedel. Was yep, it, oh, it's going to be on your list. 100%. 2001. Yeah. This movie, Hunstad, is because there's a lot of film called Dog Days. Yeah. This is Michuki. Hasis, Schwitzenturi. It's with Wärme. It's with no Wärme. It's with Has. Then Chef redet schon morgen Stuss, das tut er immer. This film bowled me over in the theater. It just, I was at a film festival, I watched this film, and I, I was just, it's basically, what my notes are like, well, it's kind of like if you took Ken Park, Gummo, The Celebration, and The Idiots, mm. but shot it in a much more yeah. kind of grandiose, yeah. it, it's docu-style, but it's mm. shot beautifully. Oh, yeah. Oh, it all feels like 70 millimeter almost. It's gorgeous. Um, but it's set in Austria in the, in the over a weekend at the height of summer, so the dog days of summer. And I, it's not that easy to see now, but I guess it is a Kino DVD that I still have doesn't look great compared to how it should look. It should yeah. be on Blu-ray by now. I have a Blu-ray. Oh, you have a Blu-ray. It's an import. Oh. And I looked, and it wasn't looking so hot. Ah, so I looked into it, and it's like a 720, uh, not a 1080. Yeah. Oh. But um, but still, it's worth yeah. having. And his work, because I hadn't heard of him before this, he's very, I, I view him almost kind of like Herzog in terms of his origin story, because he was making a lot of documentaries. Yeah. He still does. Um, some really interesting documentaries I've since digging in, but he after this he made um, Import-Export, which was really beautiful. Incredible. Ed Lackman basically ends up shooting, who also shot for Herzog, ends up shooting a lot of his films now. Uh, the Paradise Lost, Paradise Faith, Pa- no, no, Paradise Faith, Paradise Hope, and Paradise Love. Yeah, Love. Okay, yeah. I don't think no Paradise Lost. Yet. Yeah, um, that's Dante. Uh, but I haven't seen all. I've only seen I think Faith. Um, Faith is amazing. Yeah, it's one. it's actually one of my favorite films of the decade. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm yeah, glad, I'm glad I brought him up here. Then he's. In, I I got to meet him just oh, recently cool. in Armenia because uh, he was there with uh, Safari, which oh. is a brutal, brutal, New brutal watch. And Doc about oh, okay. us about oh, the safaris okay. yeah and you can imagine how yeah, he yeah. does it he made a documentary about jesus uh, people who are really into yes the jesus i know and it's really amazing it's funny and strange that's the thing this is incredibly incredibly bleak it's probably one of the the bleakest visions i've seen and yet it finds the humor in that yeah it, it has that remarkable um ability to 
laugh with and at somebody at the same time. And it's and you have to be a person from a place and know that world to be able to pull that off. Because if it's just like an, an outsider making that, it won't work. But I, I do compare it to the idiots a little bit. And even Von Trier's, uh, you know, having that kind of innocent-minded mm. person. There's one character in this. It's six vignettes connected over the summer. Uh, a lot of damaged people, a lot of older people, a lot of sad characters, uh, but also has energy. Like it opens with a guy who's just hell bent on finding out who's been fucking his girlfriend, and yes. he's just con- and and she probably hasn't even been with anyone. But he's he's at a rave and he's calling people out in bathrooms, and then he's, he's treating her terribly, and it, it, it keeps building to things that it builds observations into suspense. Yes, and that's something that's very hard to do. You yeah. know, because there's a scene where that same girlfriend later in the film is uh, after they've kind of split up, she's walking through. A uh, vacant parking lot uh, by herself, mm. and suddenly his car comes speeding around, and he does wheelies around her. He comes very close to yeah, actually like hurting a her. foot from it's her. Actually, you're actually and watching a dangerous she's not situation. A stunt, yeah. She's not a stunt. Uh, yeah, she's not perform- a stunt. You, you, yeah. you, you, you sense the danger and the trust going into this, mm. making this film. It wouldn't get made here. Um, and yet, it's it's an incredible scene. And then, of course, the you know she gets in the car, and then go they go off together and have sex. Mm. And it's it's the matter of fact as a way that he edits and shoots this. But there's a scene in the theater. I remember it was this guy. Who's whose wife <laughs> opens with her at an orgy. It was actually a little bit controversial, I guess, because it was very explicit. Yes. Uh, it never sensationalizes sex. It's, it's the opposite. It's very matter-of-fact and kind of boring. But she goes from an orgy to, to, to taking home another guy, and the, the husband's just stuck around watching as his wife does these things, bouncing a tennis ball in his, yep. in his vacant swimming pool. And that was the image and the repetition that stayed with me all these years was mm. that sequence. Mm. Um, but the characters are, are it's very strange and funny, and um, it just feels like... I don't know, you know, modern masterpiece seems like mm. an obvious thing. It's not going to be a film for a lot of people are going to find this in the same way Snowtown. It's going to be too much of a bleak vision. But I think if you're up to it, you might see something that I truly felt afterwards like I've never seen that movie before. Mm. And and it's like those movies I was saying because like Gummo, but Gummo is more stylized and a little more like cartoon in a sense. And, uh, you know, the celebration has very much got its point. This feels like a, that interesting uh, kind of – like all those things have collided. In, in the yeah, I, I I think he's he's one of my favorites. Mm. I mean, Ulrich Seidel is just he's he's one of the best living filmmakers right now, oh, working wow. filmmakers right now. I'm so and glad that you knew his work. He's not. It's not on my list because yeah. you know he actually does. These were ones that are getting no attention. I yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. and he does. You know, he's gotten attention, but um, but I I consider that one of the best debuts. Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to know how many people have seen this one in America. It feels like it probably. I saw it years ago at the Angelica Film Center okay. in That's New York, and I remember my friend saying, "You got to see this film. You're gonna like it." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. Well, it's uh, you'll probably be able to find it. You could find a disc somewhere if you're up for bleak comedy. <laughs> um. All right, I'm going to go to uh, PCP favorite director and Walter Hill. We're going to talk about uh, Hard Times from 1975. Oh, yes. I suppose you want to talk deal, huh? Well, we go uh, 50-50 in all scratch bets and expenses. All side bets, I keep 75%. That's how it works. 60-40 in my favor on scratch side bets down the middle. Well, I'm telling you the going rate. What's normal? Ask anybody. You'll do things different. Why should we? Because right now, my friend, you got a percentage of nothing. Well, that makes me even with you. I put up all the money. I take all the risks. All right, all right. All right, we'll do it your way. Kayleen! What's a man have to do to get some breakfast around here? 
I got a good feeling about this. I think we'll make some real money. Got a couple of things in mind. Set something up for you next week. Going slow, quiet. Four or five hundred dollars, something like well, that. Well, it's something I want you to know. I only come down here to make some money. <laughs> well? And to fill in some in-betweens. Betweens? Yeah, that's no kind of living. Well, it suits me. When I get enough change in my pocket, I'm gone. I'm comfortable with genre films. I think audiences are. I mean, it's a dangerous thing, uh, a genre film. What does that mean? It means we already know the story. So, oh, this is, they're going to rob a bank. Oh, okay. Um, uh, he's going to meet her in the park. And uh, it's not her sister, it's her. You know, we've all seen, you know. Now, what is your relationship as a storyteller to the audience in, in, this situa in these situations? I mean, the action film is, is maybe the most difficult. The ending is ordained. Clint Eastwood isn't going to lose. I mean, you know, go, go write a movie, go direct a movie where Dirty Harry gets shot dead in the end of the movie. <laughs> and see if you can even, you know, don't go where the audience goes. Because if they can find you, they'll hang you. There's no, we know that Eastwood will prevail. You know, an audience, I believe, wants a familiar story. They want it told in an unfamiliar way that seems fresh. Or... They want a brand new story, uh, very few of those. I don't think I've ever seen one, but some are more new than others. And the audience wants those to be told in a familiar way. If you tell the new story in a new way, nobody is there, nobody will stay with it. If you tell the old story in the old way, nobody will be there because they've, they've already seen it and why should they spend the money? So, a lot of it is just common sense, I think. But, uh, but at the time, films were in a kind of story crisis, I think. They are now, too, but for different reasons. You know, one of the hardest things about storytelling is to make the audience feel a sense of completion, that they're satisfied, that even though they knew the story, <laughs> as we discussed before, even though they knew what was going to happen, happen, but that they had a, a sense of completion about the way the story was told. Uh, it's come up on the show before, but I, I felt like it was due for a revisit. And um, it's actually one of his best films. It really is, and I hadn't seen it until mm, three, four years ago. It was it, it was one that I had lumped in with some other Bronson films because I had an incredible run of Bronson when I was a kid. He was one of the formative action guys for me, along with Clint Eastwood and Bruce Lee, you know, that sort of stuff that I would go through at the video store I used to go to. Uh, it was in a sh supermarket at the time. But um, but yeah, for some reason I hadn't seen it. And and, and then I rewatched it again just for this. And man, oh man, so good. Um, but uh, for those that don't know, Walter Hill was obviously a writer before he was a director. He had done screenplays for... Uh, if you haven't seen Hickey and Boggs, oh, I'm, I haven't. Uh, I mean, okay, so you get the Bill, you get the oh, Bill yeah. Cosby factor, which is hard, yeah. but it's uh, I think it's the only film that Robert Culp directed, and so it's Cosby and Culp as detectives, oh, really God. bleak noir L.A. film. Uh, that's his first script, as far as I know. So uh, and I know Tarantino's a big fan of Hickey and Boggs, actually. Um, so then he's got The Getaway, he's got Macintosh Man, Drowning Pool, and then Hard Times. Does and he ever talk about like if he saw one of them that he just thought, oh, they fucked it up. I have to I, there's it. there's an interview that I found. Oh fuck, I can't remember the site, but um, but it was really cool because it was like part four of this, you know, and it was like a forty minute interview. This section with him, if you just look up 
Walter Hill Hard Times interview. It comes up, and I can't remember the name of it, but I meant to go back and watch the first three parts, which is obviously about his screenwriting, and I'm sure he'll have some. He was, I think he was just finishing his thoughts on the Macintosh Man, and I don't think that was a particularly great experience for him. But I know this was a tough one because, you know, first-time director working with two really big actors in Bronson and James Coburn, and apparently... And one of their wives. <laughs> yes. Of course, Jill Ireland is in the movie. Um, and she's, I think she's good. I, I think I was, maybe I was telling you, I can't remember, but I think Bronson and Ireland both have this weird detachment in the way that they act. And some would say, well, she's just not very good, but I don't necessarily agree with that. And I especially think when they're together in a scene that it works, you know, and obviously there's some real chemistry there, but there's something else in the way that they approach each other. But um, you'd think that the big star, that Bronson might be problematic for a first-time director, but it turns out in this interview, Hill was saying that James Coburn was actually the pain in the ass. And it was mostly, I think, you know, who knows? I mean, it's probably ego. It's probably a seasoned actor working with a first-time director who, you know, in some cases has some ideas about how things should be staged. And apparently he let Walter know, and they got in some fights on some occasions, and Bronson actually stepped in and said, all right, let's... Jimmy, let's just do it like he said. And so, you know, that's kind of cool. I mean, not that I was never, I've never been down on Bronson. I'm actually a huge, huge fan of well, him. This is, this is one of his best roles. And yeah. I actually think it might be my favorite Coburn role. I think Coburn in this film, every time he flashes a smile, it's like a million dollars on screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's so charming. And then Strother Martin, who yeah. was just, Strother yeah. Martin, it's my favorite thing he did. How much dope are you doing? This month, my financial condition has prevented certain journeys of the imagination. While in my third year of studies, a small black cloud appeared on campus. I left under it. What he's trying to say is that he's a dyed wool hophead. I have a weakness for opium. It's a habit that's hard to quit. Some are born to fail, others have it thrust upon them. Oh yeah. Well for those that don't know, it's it's a it's about uh it's set sort of depression era movie, uh set in New Orleans and it's about, you know, uh pickup fights, basically fist fights, you know, where James Coburn plays sort of a manager that's got uh got a hitter, as it were, and you know, Bronson's character comes in and knocks out his hitter like right away. Um but yeah, then they you know they start to get together a plan to do more stuff together and they get uh Strother Martin as a doctor character that they bring on, like you give a percentage of your winnings to the doctor to keep you fit. But I see your hands. No protruding knuckles. No calcium deposits. Mm-hmm. Make a fist. Ooh. <laughs> More area to absorb the concussion of a blow without breaking. Simple matter of engineering stress. Reasonably thick skin. Oh, he's got good skin. I'd say there's a good chance you're not what uh, speed with an unfortunate turn of phrase refers to as a bleeder. <laughs> like I told you, he's good. How much? Ten percent of what we win, expenses, standard. And Strother Martin, yeah, big PCP favorite, and he's fantastic. And he, I believe, has the last line of the movie, which I'm not going to spoil, but which is fucking great. I absolutely love the last line of this movie. Um, but yeah, it's just a great performance by both Coburn and Bronson together. I mean, they, I don't know. Not, I have not, to revisit it yeah. because there's that new. Was a, Twilight Time. Twilight Time put it out. Yeah, Twilight right? Time yeah. put it out. I think that's out of print, but there's a Masters of Cinema, which may be region locked. I don't think that's a problem for you. But no. uh, 
<laughs> but um, yeah. but yeah, I think they're from the same transfer if you're interested. But okay. but anyway, yeah, it looks good and yeah, it's just really an incredibly strong debut film. You know, it really sets the tone for what Walter Hill is going to do in the future. Really, mm. yeah, and I mean, yeah, if you're if you are a fan of those actors, their chemistry is just so good. It's dynamite. It's, I'm genuinely surprised to hear that he wasn't getting along with him on set. That that I had heard a story about Jill Ireland because the problem with a married couple is you might not have control over the casting of that, yeah. and then you're kind of locked in. Right. But uh, Josh Olson did a Q&A with Hill at the uh, Arrow. Arrow, yeah. It was about two years ago. I had never seen the film. So for me, the bar, even though I love Walter Hill, I was like, eh, depression era drama. It's just, I was so pleasantly surprised by it's, how fun it is. It's fantastic. I think they're finally doing a, uh, a Warriors remake. Oh, oh really? Oh, yeah, I've okay. heard that it's finally in place. Interesting. And it's the Safety yeah. Brothers drama? <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> well, you know, they're doing 48 Hours. Oh, that's right. Okay, so yeah. Is that right? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. what it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Cast? I don't know. Okay. They better put Pattinson know. in it. No, it's just one of they just think what's a modern version of that chemistry because that yeah. chemistry is just magic. Yeah, who's they, the modern Nolte? Who's the modern Eddie Murphy? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it could be what's his name? Dave Chappelle is like that could work. Uh, you know, that could, could work. work. But who's little, the modern? Who's the modern Nolte? Is the thing like Nolte yeah. is almost like a holdover from right. the Bronson and uh, Kilburn era. He's like he bridges that gap for me. Like he sort of picks up. So what would be fun is casting Eddie Murphy in the Nolte role now. Oh, oh I Murphy actually do. Calm. I actually think I'm suspecting they're going to flip it yeah, in terms great. of race. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. 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 No, they just wrapped their new film and they're very excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited to see it. You know, Darius Kanji shot it. Whoa. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> He's a guy who doesn't get talked about as much now. I feel like I remember when Seven came out. Mm-hmm. I remember when the laser disc of Seven came mm-hmm. out, the Criterion, and Darius Kanji had like overseen the transfer and people were saying it was stunning. This is the laser disc, mind you. Right. Um, and then. You know, he. I felt like he was hot for a little while there, and then suddenly people weren't using him. And true, I don't, that's true. I don't that's know true. why that is. He's yeah. amazing, yeah, amazing he's guy. He's one of the best. Um, so it's my turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, you know how you, n- you never know what years to give these films because you don't know whether to go with the festival release or the or the domestic release. But I think this film actually premiered in 2014, but that wasn't even the. Uh, it was it was the official entry from India for the foreign language film for the Academy Awards in 2016. <laughs> it took a while for um, for it to come out. Uh, Kino Lorber put it out. Uh, it's called Court. The accused Narayan Kamre, age 65, is charged under Indian Penal Code, Section 306, abetment of suicide in the death of Vasudev Pawar, age 25. Do you Vasudev Pawar? No. To explore the nightmare of going through a trial, that's what attracted me. When I went to like a court session, I saw that things are not quite what I've seen on television or films. It was really different. And I saw some scope for a very interesting narrative. I saw some scope for humor in it because things were not really very organized. There were no mics. Some of the lawyers were not like good orators. So a lot of that kind of attracted me and I I wanted to explore it. I wanted to learn for myself, uh, you know, how the judiciary in India functions. When I read the the, the screenplay, I I found it hilarious. I find the film very funny. And that was the first thing I I told uh, Chaitanya because uh, his observational humor and just kind of uh, his approach with the text, his use of words, and it's, I find it hilarious, the whole film, in kind of a dark, sad way, but. Your case will not be heard today. Why, sir? You have come wearing sleeveless top to the court hearing. It's quite disheartening, it's quite sad. Visiting courts is not fun. You see a lot of people waiting there 
I mean, for us, it was homework because we were going there to, you know, whether to look for art or whether it was for their own character work. A lot of people just waiting and each face had a lot of pain because it felt like they had been there for a while. And I really do consider it one of the strongest debuts ever because I even have a quote on the... <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> they quoted me. Nice. Um, a different year. <laughs> yeah, I said, one of the strongest debuts ever, my favorite film of 2014. You know what, I think I I've saw this disc and I saw your quote yeah, on it and it definitely that. caught my eye. Um, it's, a, it's a film called Court. It's not a Bollywood film. It's an Indian independent directed by uh, Shaitanya Tamani. And it's... an. Oh my God! It, mm. And this guy is so young too. I think he's like only twenty-seven now. So oh, wow. he made it like a twenty-three or twenty-four or something. And it is so mature, so sophisticated. Um, here's the little synopsis: When an aging activist is arrested, the lies of the accused, the lawyers, and the judge reveal bigotry that underscores the judicial system. So it's a very, it's actually a very slow film, but on purpose because you are being tortured the way that, you know, the defendant is being tortured. And it's, you're just watching this, this court case go down almost what feels like real time that takes place over the course of months. And it, uh, it's, it's just a really wonderful political, I just, I just think it's a very sophisticated film for somebody who's just so young, and uh, I highly recommend checking it out. And again, uh, Kino Lorber put it out on Blu-ray, so it's available in the States. Yeah, that one was way off my radar, yeah. not at all, until I saw that Blu-ray come out. Yeah. No clue what it was. It premiered thing. at Venice. Nice. And yeah. so you've met the director? Or yeah, yeah, it? because he was actually in L.A. to promote, you know, to try to get it. Uh, I don't know if it was it. It was the entry, so I, didn't, I don't think it made it to the final five. I don't think it was, but he was here, you know, doing screenings and stuff, oh, and I got to meet him. Nice guy, great guy. Uh, nice. Okay, yeah, that's one definitely. Uh, that's still available. Like I'll be able. To oh yeah, that, oh, that yeah. Blu-rays. I want to say that's 2017, 2018. Maybe it was 2018. Just probably last year. Yeah, yeah. Really recent. Yeah. Uh, I'm going back to 1970 then. Uh, for, well, we just, you know, we just lost a couple weeks ago. We lost, uh, you know, probably the biggest influential director on me, which is Nicholas Rogue, and. Uh, just an utterly fascinating film, and I also wanted an excuse to rewatch it because I've probably uh, seen this the least of his films. It's um, directed by two people's debut, so I get double bang <laughs> Donald Kamel and Nicholas Rogue together nice. uh, for Performance from oh, 1970. Yeah. Warner Brothers presents Performance with Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger, James Fox and James Fox. This is a film about madness. No soap on the gentleman's collar. Madness and sanity. A film about fantasy. How much did you give him? Two thirds of the big one. Mm, That's insane. The old man was called in the language of Persia. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. <laughs> and life. This is a film about vice. And versa. Performance. I'm Nick Rogue, and uh, this is an unusual place for me to be. It's a very tight club in... Hollywood. Um, I've never been a member. I come as a guest, or don't, and then I don't um, try and join. But whenever you 
make an independent film, I mean, the difficulty is, especially now in distribution, because I say that the studio have their own product, and um, they're more interested in seeing that that gets out and is distributed. It's been a bit of a regression the past few years. We were just getting on to another form of uh, cinematic expression when, when we went into a deeply conservative social climate. It took a step back, you know, to um, reconsolidate itself, and we went back to a very literary form of expression in the cinema, you know, which um, it was just breaking down, I think, in the next few years. That will change again. It'll go a bit further forward. I had already started to work outside that literary form before the regression happened. <laughs> so I can't change my way of thinking. That's the way I think about the cinema. That it's. Uh, I think that cinematic expression is. Can some? I don't think of it as a complex thing at all. I think it's a way of looking at things. Yeah, I think Nicholas Rogue's films are all about people's perception of what's happening from inside the mind, as it were, and the way thought processes work and, and the way people, people's minds flip from one thing to another. I don't think I've ever resolved the problem of identity and of who, who people really are. We give ourselves away with our work, you know, that's our only form of really, truly communicating is through work and through action. It takes a long time to make a film, and it's quite hard work. I know that I would think that um, they'll love this one. <laughs> and I watched it again last night on Amazon Prime. It's uh, the HD version. And, you know, I feel like it's one of those movies I feel like I remember pretty well being a huge fan of Sexy Beast. I mean, I truly think Sexy Beast is one of the most entertaining debuts ever. I just think it's a hilarious yeah. film. There's a nice connection because the star of this film is James Fox. And in, and in uh, Sexy Beast, he gets to play a very different version. And this, he's the hardened criminal. Uh, and back in, and in Sexy Beast, he's the, uh, the banker. The sophisticated banker ends up being buggered by the bad guy <laughs> in one of the most surprising things you've probably uh, I've ever seen in a macho gangster film, you know, it's, it, which was really refreshing. Um, this film's phenomenal it's it's such an interesting movie like I, I viewed Nick Rogue, you know, it's co-directed. Uh, what that means is probably pretty murky, but I would, my guess is uh, I know Kamel developed the film. It was a bit more of a comedy originally. Um, and then Rogue, who had, you know, had been working with people like, you know, David Lean. And I think there's a great, great quote that was coming out after he passed away where David Lean one time just turned to him and said, hey, do you think I'm becoming old-fashioned? And, and Rogue was like, yes. <laughs> and it wasn't long that they worked together. He was just done. He, I think Rogue, I feel like when you watch his frame, he, he's a seeker I feel like he's never settling the the frame is still looking for a more interesting way to shoot it even when he's shooting it mm. I feel like he's and so you know obviously segue into directing was still shooting his work between here and walkabout but there's something so high in this film especially where it's just constantly looking for oh yep here's the right frame and it's it's electric it's uh, it's a strange film you know it's uh, it has a great tagline vice versa and it's really about yeah you know it's I guess it's taking a little bit of a persona influence but it was a film that Definitely was a cult film because it came out to zero attention, was shelved for two years, uh, even though they had Mick Jagger in the lead and, you know, key period, 1970 for the Stones. Um, 
Wow. I yeah. had no idea. Shot, yeah, two years before anyone saw it, and then mm. it kind of got some weak reviews, and then it suddenly you know took off as a huge cult film mm. in London, you know, for obviously reasons. But it's so it opens in the gangster world. You're just completely dropped in. Uh, James Fox is a. I guess I heard he spent a good year living with and checking out people in the underworld to really play that character because he was he was kind of famous for the, uh, another favorite movie of mine, The Servant by Joseph Losey, yes, a Harold Pinter film, great film, and he plays yeah, kind of awesome innocent. Movie. You know, Dirk Bogart's the one manipulating him in that film, so it's kind I of. I forgot he was the other guy in that. Yeah, he's the other uh, other guy, and it's it's a great fucking movie. Um, uh, probably the best Pinter adaptation. Um, and he in this one he's playing uh, Chaz, and he's you know he, he's a very rough uh, East Londoner. Uh, works for this guy called a great gangster character called Harry Flower. It's a great name, mm. uh, and he's. Larry's got big glasses and just doesn't look like a gangster. That's what's fun about fun about that. And he, uh, at a certain point, takes uh, takes out his aggression on a guy too far. After these guys come to rough him up, uh, he's kind of being betrayed by his own ga- you know his own gang, and he ends up uh, getting a gun and killing one of them where he really isn't meant to. It's unsanctioned, and so suddenly he becomes he kind of has to go on the lam to hide from his own gang. Uh, and he find he overhears some of this. It's pretty funny. A guy who kind of looks like Prince, and he overhears him talking to his mother or something about, yeah, oh, yeah, that that rock star's got in a vacant room right now. So he hears it and he goes straight to, uh, goes straight to this place where he, you know, Mick Jagger's renting out his basement, and Mick Jagger's playing kind of a variation. It's a rock star who was big briefly and then has disappeared and retired because he lost his demon, whatever yeah. that means. And yeah. uh, they go in, and he starts living in this world, and then the things it's basically becomes this interesting personality switch between these two characters over time where he suddenly he takes some mushrooms uh, and it's slowly kind of becoming more open and more feminine and there's just really interesting kind of gender lines being blurred you have Anita Pallenberg in there having yeah. crazy sex scenes yeah. and, uh, and she she looks very good oh, in the I film mean, <laughs> uh, yeah yeah she yeah. does and it's it, but it's it's definitely you know there, people always talk oh it's a drug film this one yeah. really does feel close to what it must be like to take take a drug but it still makes mm-hmm. sense and it, and where it goes I think is actually really exciting the last like 10 minutes are pretty remarkable and I you know I won't run it for people who still get a chance to discover this but I think it just it's so many things about film language are being rediscovered in this movie and in this moment you see what will become Rogue's editing style mm. is at work uh, Kimmel obviously had a very different career um, but was still interesting why do the eyes of mm. film we've talked about on here yeah I, it's a must if you haven't seen it just it's it's not it's not like my favorite where my heart goes to something like walk about and certain don't mm. look now but I, I think it's as interesting as anything he ever did I have to revisit yeah. yeah, there's a nice Warner Archive Blu-ray of that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's that's unlike almost any movie. When yeah, you watch it, I, I I can't. I mean, cult movie. That's about the only category I could put it in. Gangster, I guess. You know, but and it's pretty taboo too. There's a, there's a. I mean, for the time, there's a scene, a, a shot where towards you know towards the later part of the film where he leans in. He's got a wig on now, and this is the gangster character. He's kind of out of his mind, and he leans in, and it looks like he's about to kiss Mick Jagger out of nowhere. You haven't seen these two kind yeah. of get closer, and then it perfectly graphic matches to the Mick Jagger oh, yes. becoming the female, the French girl. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's just so flawless that it really blurs that line of gender and identity. Uh, identity is, is the a big, big thing. part, it's, yeah. And it probably, you know, I, I don't know if they had a point, you know, or they, I don't think they, don't think they were being so literal. But you do see that idea of like what it means to be like uh, what kind of person between the hippies and the gangsters and this weird blurring of youth identity. You know, it's. It's it's a really electric movie, regardless. So. Yeah, that's a good word for it. What for was sure. his last, Nicholas? Uh, his last film? It, yeah, um, I think it was Puffball, which I never watched. It was like a, a horror supernatural horror film with Donald Sutherland shot in Ireland, and it, I didn't hear great things. And I was like, oh, I'll wait one day when I'm yeah 
I've seen too many of the films, and I'll right. finally see it. I think the last good thing he uh, probably did, he did a, um, maybe Track 29 might be one of the better last, yeah. you know. It's still, that's but, yeah, it also very very cult. I've seen of. something on Twitter recently where people are taking the uh, the first frame of a mm. director's filmography and the last frame of oh, a director's filmography and putting that. them back to back. I think that's Scott McCauley from uh, Filmmaker put one up recently. It's, nice. it's really interesting. Oh, that's a really interesting. That idea. actually is a cool idea. Yeah, I can look for these on Twitter. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. but the, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, people. Will, I mean, that's the thing. He 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 had a run. Of, I I've talked about his work a lot on here, but there's a run of about six or seven films that I think are just. I still I still have never seen The Witches. Oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's really is it, is surprisingly it good. good. Yeah, really yeah. Good. It's, okay. it's it's but different. It doesn't feel like a Nick Rogue. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say it feels different than the others, but yeah. it's still really really good. It's really good. It has some genuinely scary. Yeah, exactly. Kinder trauma. Which moment where you're like, hey, we I gotta show that, that to <laughs> I gotta show that to my daughter at yeah. some point. It's, but, uh, it reminds me in some ways of like the the Hall of Heads in uh, Return to Oz, how that affected me. It's similarly yeah. to some of the stuff in The Witches, it does make you go like, who hired him for that job? Like, <laughs> what did so, they see right before that? Yeah. That made like, oh, don't look now. You got to hire him. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I don't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I love that studios used to make choices like that. It's yeah. a shame, you know. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to go back to uh, basically a double – this is a tie. It's something that I called out on the very first episode of the show in my Handshake 5, and it is a, a double feature that I think I guess I must want to do at some point. I must want to have these two films show together because I, I'm calling them together. I was going to just do uh, My Bodyguard from 1980, Tony Bill's debut film, oh, yeah. which I love and which – you I know, still haven't seen it. Oh, dear. I've got, I bought oh, it wow. after you talked about it like all those years ago. I'm it's excited. on my shelf. I'm excited. i got to do it. <laughs> I'm excited for you to see it because I so. – I think it's one of those, like, obviously I can't divorce myself from the nostalgia of it because I saw it when I was younger, but I still feel like it holds up outside of that. It's just a really great, dude, after you saw Over the Edge, you're going to yeah. fucking love it because, yeah. Well, yeah, I got my Over the Edge <laughs> shirt on today. But yeah, um, Matt Dillon, basically it's about um, Chris Makepeace plays a kid who, uh, his dad runs, uh, he's a hotel manager played by Martin Mull, which is great. Um, who's dealing with issues in that he's got drama at the hotels with his mom, played by Ruth Gordon, who's wonderful, who's always hitting on people at the bars of the hotels, getting him in trouble. Anyway, so the kid moves around a lot. So he's at a, he's the new kid at school, and he runs afoul of the local bully, played by Matt Dillon. And you know, you grew up a lot over the summer, baby. But you get this beautiful hair. Kmart. <laughs> Kmart. <laughs> So funny. Excuse me, Mr. Moody. Are you having trouble finding a seat? Yeah, I have one, but this sucker swiped it from me. I was here first. Bullshit. If you can't find a seat back here, I'd be glad to have you come sit up front with me. Alan Blumenthal. Cindy Russ. Who over that seat? Ricky Linderman. Does anybody know if Ricky Linderman is in school? Who's Linderman? No one. Just a local mass murderer. Okay. Does anybody know for a fact if Ricky Linderman is in school or not? Probably in New York climbing the Empire State Building. Clifford P E A C H E. Clifford, is that peach or peachy? Peach. No one was fruit. What did you say, Melvin? Melvin. Melvin. I don't go by that no more, Clarice. Oh. 
Fair enough. All right, why don't you call me Ms. Jump, and what shall we call you? M. Big M. I like that. Is that BM for sure? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That kid's gonna get him. You gotta live, even if you ain't gonna live long. You and me, yeah. we're gonna have a little talk after school. Right? <laughs> right? Very much in, you know, not a career-making role, but, you know, something along the lines of the over-the-edge stuff. This is only like a year after the over-the-edge over the role. So he's doing something a little bit similar, but a little more... I, I feel like his character in Over-the-Edge is more um, more of an, a guy that you that you could see hang out with, despite, despite him being misguided, you know? This guy is just a straight-up bully asshole, you know? And... Uh, so, you know, first day, first class period, he makes a smart comment and gets himself in trouble. And so then it becomes an issue where he's being harassed by the kid. And, you know, it's one of those high school sort of conundrums. But the really interesting part is that Adam Baldwin plays this other kid who has a checkered past that I won't spoil, but there's rumors about him. It's very much in the, this is the reason I connect these two movies. The other movie, of course, is Three O'Clock High, which I've talked about on the show, which I absolutely yeah, love. You, you love that. Film. I do love that film. <laughs> I talk about I it. I only started it a couple years ago for the first time. I guess I'm blown away by how funny it was. Yeah, see, I still, I think the reason I keep bringing it up is A, we feel like there's going to be a lot of people who are listening to the show for the first time and uh, they didn't hear that first episode. And I I brought it up, but I haven't talked about it really since the first episode. Um, but anyway, the, the there's some odd similarities between the Buddy Ravel character in Three O'Clock High and this character in terms of the way he's been mythologized, mm. in terms of what people think he's done versus what he's really done. And they're, they're two different things. Like, the Buttervelle character is much more like the Matt Dillon character in My Bodyguard, but he has this other mythology about him that kind of plays into the uh, the Adam Baldwin character. Anyway, so Chris Makepeace... Physicality there. Absolutely. As well. Totally. If yeah. you watch it, I mean, if you threw a leather jacket on Adam Baldwin in this movie, or if you threw a, a military jacket on Buddy Ravel and Three O'Clock High, they're very similar in that way. Um, but yeah, it just becomes a thing where he's trying to get Adam Baldwin to be on his side and help him with this bully problem. And it kind of goes from there. And it's got a really fantastic ending. And, and I still feel like uh, people that watch it now, it's hard not to respond to the ending where it goes. And I've heard, I, I remember there's a podcast I used to listen to called The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema where my, one of my friends that was a co-host there showed it to like his mom. And she, at the end, was just on her feet, just like freaking out. And I was just like, that says something. You know, this is an older woman watching this movie for the first time, and she's really into it. Are you so, talking about 3 o'clock or? Both, oh, really. Oh, but okay. she was she was seeing My Bodyguard. Okay. That's the one. But they also both have a similar kind of ending. There's a lot of parallels, but one is more dramatic and emotional, and one is more stylized and just crazy frenetic. And that's 3 o'clock high. What I'm trying to find out is you are Buddy Ravel, right? A narc? No, I'm with the school paper. What do you want, man? I just got to the school. I don't want anything. I, th that is all. All I want to do is talk to you, see? See, they told me to write this stupid little piece about you because you, you're the new kid on campus. You're going to do a stupid little piece on me? Why would I want to look stupid? No, 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 no. You're not going to look stupid. Mm, not at all. And incidentally, just so you know, I don't care if you do all kinds of dope and shit. I'm, I'm not anybody's narc, you know? Well, not that I think that you do dope or anything like that. I mean... Listen, 
Why don't we forget this whole thing and pretend this never happened, okay? You're never gonna forget this happened. you to understand something, Jerry. I don't like it when people know about me. In fact, I don't like it when anybody knows about me. So you can take that newspaper of yours and wipe off your dick with it. You made me mad, Jerry. Now I'm gonna have to do something to work it off. Work it off? You and me, we're gonna have a fight today. After school, three o'clock in the parking lot. You try and run, I'm gonna track you down. You go to a teacher, it's only gonna get worse. You sneak home, I'm gonna be under your bed. You and me, three o'clock. Uh, more people have seen Three O'Clock High, I think, and, and rightfully so, but I still feel like it's not recognized as the classic it needs to be recognized as. Yeah. But talk about a great debut film. Phil Joanu, I mean, Spielberg protege, and just even even Spielberg was anti all the camera movement and stylization he was doing with Barry Sonnenfeld at that time. Yeah. And I just think it it stands as a testament to what a great director he is in that he heard Spielberg say, stop moving the camera around, and he was like, no, nope, I'm still going to do it. And he made a great movie. And I still think it's one of the great high school movies of the 1980s. It's I have just to check out that. Uh, it's Shout Factory. Shout Factory, yeah. yeah. Shout Factory selected yeah. a Blu-ray of it. I haven't seen it since the 80s. Oh, you got to see it again. Yeah. I, I'd be very curious to hear what you think now. Okay. But it still really holds up and it's really great and a lot of fun. My um, co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash, big fan of that. Nice. I remember him talking about it at NYU when I first met him. Nice. It's it, one of those movies that yeah. like a lot of people saw it on VHS or they saw it on TV or you know something like that. And since it wasn't a John Hughes film, it just didn't enter the lexicon as far as high school movies go. And uh, anyway, but I love both. And uh, my bodyguard is is Tony Bill, the actor, making his directorial debut. And he would go on to do um, some other interesting stuff. There's a movie called Five Corners that I really like with Jodie Foster. You know, he he's a really interesting dude as an actor and as a director, but I think it's a really great, uh, heartfelt debut film that really sticks with me, and I love to show it to anybody, you know, of almost all ages. It mm. still f- appeals to both. But anyway, My Bodyguard, 3 O'Clock Eye, I think I need to do this oh, double yeah. feature at some yeah. point in a theater. You think how hard it is to make that first film? It's always weird when somebody makes a masterpiece first. Mm. You know, it's it almost unfortunate sometimes. You're like, oh, God, I, what do you do now? You know, yeah. Yeah. back to yeah. the pain exactly. model, obviously. <laughs> what do you got, I'm, Sean? I'm glad I made a piece of crap my first time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's going to be remastered. <laughs> yeah, 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 a remastered one. Um, so this film also just got just didn't get the attention it should have gotten. I found it actually on Amazon. Um, the Happiest Day in the Life of Ali Maki, 2016. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was uh, what I was interested about Oli was that he, he was very good in what he did and he loved his thing, but still he, there was a big contradiction, contradiction between him and the sport that he was doing. Like everybody, he was, he, he was 
in a field that everybody wanted him to be something else that he is not. So, yeah, that I, I, I felt it's interesting. They were like, they, they wanted to have this hero, but he didn't want to be that kind of a hero that they wanted. I don't even know if it has an official release here in the I've states. Never heard of um, it's it, it, think about uh, think of, it's almost like the kinder, gentler Raging Bull. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> okay. um, the reason I say it is also I like that stylistically pitch. they look very similar. Um, uh, the director is Ju. Uh, 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 I'm going to totally slaughter his name. Joho Kusmanin. He's he's uh, Finnish. And um, this is the true story of Ali Maki, the famous Finnish boxer who had a shot at the 1962 World Featherweight title. It is a uh, period piece. I don't um, think I've seen any Finnish films outside of Karismaki in my life. Like, mm. I don't know what else they've made. Me neither. Besides his filmography. Yeah. yeah. Check this one out. Um, they shot it on a black and white 60 millimeter reversal. Ooh. It's time travel. I wow. mean, it totally feels like this film was shot in 1962. Yeah. I'm nice. looking at him thinking, this was shot in 62 and just scanned. The negative <laughs> was scanned yesterday. Um, gorgeous looking film with really high production value. And also it's really sweet. It's a really sweet movie. It's a, it's a love story. And it's not about his boxing career. It's about how his boxing career gets derailed because of because he falls in love, mm. and that's the happiest day in <laughs> the in kindly, his life. gentler raging. It's really a like sweet this. movie, great acting, and and just a, it's like a great date movie. It's yeah. uh, I would highly recommend. Just like it's and it's it's I don't think it's even rated R. I think it's like a right like a like PG <laughs> PG sweet How wholesome movie. Uh, I think I actually did it on Amazon Prime. Oh. I streamed oh. it. I believe. Okay, but I know it's it's out there. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, that sounds great. Well, I had to decide between um, something that just is going to feel funny in this other list for everyone today or Blood Simple, one of the greatest <laughs> debuts ever. And every year I watch Blood Simple, I'm blown away by just like how brilliant a film. I mean, I think it's their best film, and that sounds crazy when you're talking about guys who have made that many great films. But just from sheer rewatching of it and showing it to students especially, yeah. it's a crackling. That, it, oh, yeah. That's There's great. so much. In terms of miscommunication. Um, but that seems like a no-brainer. This one, I won't talk very long on it, but it's going to surprise it. So Ari Aster's new film, Hereditary, is obviously a pretty, you know, it's a remarkable debut, mm. whether people... Are, not everyone's going to like it because it's incredibly harrowing depression. Uh, you know, the way it kind of really aims at the family and your emotions versus just the horror. It's very Bergman gone horror. Very um, so I was thinking about horror um, debuts. And, you know, obviously I think like, you know, Bava's Black Sunday is another one that comes to mind. But I think the greatest horror debut in, in terms of most assured, and this will sound weird that I'm bringing up such a major movie today, but I think it's worth noting. Uh, I think Hellraiser is one of the most assured debuts I can imagine. The confidence to make a movie that well, that classical, that adult. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something I have a, you know, it's a weird relationship to horror because I, I've been doing shockwaves in these shows for years. But, you know, so much of what you have to watch to get to the good stuff yeah. is just is just been made by people just to make a movie right. or just to make horror. But when somebody comes with a, obviously, Barker was, you know, a, an author uh, for years before and had, had mounted plays, but he really didn't know a lot about films. Right. And he even said he really didn't understand lenses, didn't understand any of the technical language. Mm-hmm. And when I watch this movie now, I'm floored by how assured that film is. And and I, I think it's um, the sexuality of it is unrivaled in horror and I think he, he's pushing into taboos. They're fascinating, you know. If, and the reason I wanted to bring it up today was because, uh, yes, when I say this on my other show, it's no-brainer. 
but because I know we reach some people who stay away from horror or aren't interested in horror, and there's something uh, about the relationships. If you could get through a her- hereditary, I do think coming back to a film like Hellraiser and forgetting all these sequels that just you know water down this this yeah. idea. The Cenobites right. and Pinhead are such a minor yeah. part of this film. They're only in it for I think I think Pinhead's in it for something like you know five minutes. The box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box. Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. It was a mistake! I didn't I didn't mean to help it! It was a mistake! You can go! We can't. No, no, no. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Clive Barker, does the fertility of your own imagination never disturb you? For most ordinary people, it must be pretty frightening to have that sort of thing in your mind just bursting to get out. It belongs to me. I mean, it's mine. For better or worse, it's mine. Um, And these kind of weird things have been going around my head since, well, for as long as I can remember. My mother will will testify that when other kids were drawing houses with nuclear families standing outside and little suns in the sky, I was drawing beasts devouring other beasts. I think that's what I was always doing. So it's intimate to me. It's uh, it's my kind of truth. And uh, I'm unashamed of it. uh, And... I guess they're my monsters. You know, they belong to me. What's fascinating is it's a it's a man who uh, you know made love to his his brother's wife on her wedding night, <laughs> and then tries to make to, to feel the ultimate in pleasure and pain, and ends up being physically yeah. destroyed by these demons, uh, yeah, and then coming warped. back. Yeah, it's it's it's. And like, he was young when he made it, right? I mean, he must have been twenty six or something like yeah. that. I mean, yeah. but it's it, what I what I mean. It's just so well made, and it's so assured, and it's so risky, and yet lands everything. The only thing that. Uh, dated is the effects in the last like act mm. you know some of the kind of it's the cg and color stuff is mm. dated but the actual creature effects frank when he he comes back to you know existence and that's as she realizes as she spills blood yes. this is his ex-lover he's coming back and the effects of that character are still my, some of my favorites because the emotion of the actor is just so dead on yeah i agree and it's, i have that it's uh, arrow Box set, box oh, yeah. set which, which has really a great nice. um, documentary. Yes, but it's yeah, it's the uh, and also it's got another uh, PCP favorite actor of all time uh, in a British film, but a very American actor, and that is Andrew Robinson uh, from Charlie Varick. Oh wow, one of our I totally he forgot he was in that. Mm. And he's and what's so fun in this film? There's a part where the killer, his brother, is wearing his skin at the end, and, yeah. and so you get to see Andrew Robinson playing <laughs> the other version, and it's it's you know this and it's and here's the part that will shock you if you if you watched this recently. Nine hundred thousand dollar film. Wow! Whoa! Yeah. No yeah. idea. Under a million dollars. I watched that movie and go, I have no idea how. The, I mean, sure, it's mostly in a house, but yes. my God, yeah. it, it, they get. So, I mean, there's so much bang. There's crazy creature effects, but it, it's really just such a seeing a hereditary reach kind of a broader audience mm. because of having a obviously largely because mm. of a great central performance, but um, also just the assuredness of mm. the direction, whether people liked it or not. Uh, Claire Higgins in this is the MVP. The the actress, uh, you know, she she unfortunately didn't return for the 
sequel, even though the character is in the sequel. But this is a, I just wanted to put it on this list right. as outside. I know it's going to seem a little strange because it's such a kind of a well-known film. But yeah. I think if we're talking about debuts, there is a director who I wish he made more movies. He only made three films, I guess. Yes. And I wish he had made ten. Mm. Yeah. Um, no, it's funny. An artist. You don't think of it as a debut film. You don't. For me, I don't oh, think of it all. as coming from anywhere. It's just this franchise now. Yeah. And so I don't think of, I didn't even Do really. Do you still watch them? I I no, no, no. Uh, I've I've seen I think not not because I want to I think yeah. I've kept up because of the show to be like oh what's happening to that yeah. what bastardization <laughs> I mean I think the first I, I genuinely like the second one I think it's it's directed by the editor of the first one so there's still some continuity right. to the story three's fun and yeah then it just goes Anthony Hickox right yeah, Hickox yeah and then oh, the fourth yeah. one is insane is and it's thing? actually yes yeah, technology will defeat the demons yeah. <laughs> this is crazy it's Hellraiser in space I guess they just leaned into you know they leaned into the Cenobites, yeah. and I think that's the one thing I've always said about this to people whenever they you know talk about rebooting and I always say you remember in that first film they say angels to some demons to others mm. they've never gone to the angels like there could be a whole like w- could they be a positive effect yeah. could be fascinating like there's it's an interesting mythology there the last one and I forgot the title the one that just came out last year I checked it out because uh Clue Gulliger's uh son is in it that's right and John. you have them both in yes uh, uh, and, and they're two good friends of mine. Like, I, I adore John and Clue. Yeah. They're just the best people. Yeah, so. and John is, is great in it. Is this um, Hellraiser Judgment? Uh, yeah, the one from 2018, yeah, year, right? Yeah. I think. It was, a, it was a marked improvement on the one before. Yeah. The only thing that's really interesting about it is, like, literally the last 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> they do something that is amazing. And I'm not telling people to rush out and see <laughs> this film, okay? Don't, don't hold me on accountable. I the poster of our show but saying, Sean Baker, recommend. <laughs> but there is something seconds. very interesting about the last 10 seconds of it that is a major twist and a very satisfying one. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about the beyond. We've talked about movies that yeah. do something with the last you know, yeah. minute or so that yeah. can be interesting. So yeah, yeah. I just like that we can now say we were talking about the last installment of <laughs> Hellraiser with the director of Tangerine. <laughs> I think that's I think that's what people expect from our show. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, give it if you haven't seen it for a long time or never seen it, give it a try. It's it's really a special movie. Oh, it's great, yeah. Especially if you forget the others. Yeah. Well, and this isn't my pick, but just speaking of horror debuts, it was something, and this is definitely a movie that's come up on the show before. But Basket Case oh, yeah. is a really incredible horror oh, debut. Yeah. You know. What's in the basket? <laughs> Can't believe I didn't think about. I that. mean, it's, it, well, it didn't. That necessarily... could be its own show. Horror debuts totally. because it is a. It's a way that a lot of people start their careers, even if they're not horror people. Yeah. They're told, "Oh, if you make a horror film, mm-hmm. it's a great chance." So people, even Romero, yeah. you know, you one of in Night of Living Dead. Yeah. Often that means you will be stuck. Yeah, that's films, true. You know? mm-hmm. um, but okay, so I'm gonna go uh, 1971. I'm gonna go with Elaine May's film A New oh. Leaf. She uh, she's not engaged. No. She's a botanist teaches it somewhere, writes a lot of papers on fronds for periodicals, doesn't ride either, doesn't entertain, doesn't even talk as far as I can tell. I think she's about the most isolated woman I've ever met. Rich, single, isolated. She's about to drop that teacup. Madeline, 
Incredibly clumsy woman, isn't she? No wonder she doesn't ride. Uh, uh, forgive me, Mom. Why am I? Excuse me. Excuse me. Henrietta, is this some kind of joke? Because if it is, I do not find it amusing. If your nerves aren't steady enough to hold a cup and saucer in your hand, then you shouldn't be drinking tea. I would like once, yes, but twice in a row. It's too it, much, too much. I don't madam. There you are, madam. Take your damn carpet to the cleaners and send the bill to me. There you are. Come, Miss Lowell, I'm taking you home. Thank you. Take your bag. You son of a bitch. You dare call me a son of a bitch. Madam, I have seen many examples of perversion in my time, but your erotic obsession with your carpet is probably the most grotesque and certainly the most boring I have ever encountered. You're more to be scorned than pitied. Good day, Mrs. Cunliffe. I started out by having a, a it was a short story, being an Alfred Hitchcock omnibus, and I, I liked it because I realized that the guy, the hero, was going to kill this woman, and he actually killed somebody else. I thought, oh, he's going to kill her, and he doesn't realize that he likes her. I mean, I reading this short story, and I thought, what an interesting thing to do as a, as a movie. So I, I wrote it, and we went through this thing where they said, you, you know, I said, I have to have director approval. And they said, you know, you can direct this. So I, I couldn't get it on without Walter Matthau, who started out as a regular person, and then... Um, and then on the day we began, and, and then they wanted to have Carol Channing play the woman. And I said, I, it has to be somebody who really disappears. It's the guy's moving and blah, blah, blah. So they said, well, can I pick the person? And they said, no, but you can play it. Um, and all for, all for the same money. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. And it's oh, you love it. You will love it. It's hilarious. There's no question. Um, yeah, so the, the basic story with this one is that a um, an aging spoiled brat of a man uh, who has burned through all his trust fund money uh, realizes that he is going to basically be totally out of the lifestyle he's accustomed to unless he can marry a wealthy woman and take her money. Uh, and basically he sets up a sort of ticking clock for himself by borrowing money from his uncle played by James Coco who's amazing uh, and he has like six weeks to do it and so he's got this real sharp timeline and he runs into a woman played by Elaine May who's just the most homely biologist uh, person and he he's not really a social guy. He's not a guy who likes women. He's just, he's, he's, he's a bastard. He really is a bastard, <laughs> but it's, it's in the best possible Walter Matthau kind of way. He's hilarious in this movie. And the movie is really well directed. It's got some great montage stuff in the beginning. And she does, of all the movies I've seen that do that thing where they're having a conversation and they cut during the conversation to another scene, but they're still carrying that dialogue from, you know, she does it really well and she does it a bunch, several times in this movie. Um, I noticed that via the commentary on the Olive Films signature Blu-ray, which is a great disc, by the way, they threw out some stats that I thought were interesting and I didn't really realize how groundbreaking, I mean, obviously she's not the first female director, but at the time, apparently she was, the first major studio female director since Ida Lupino directed her last film for Jesus Columbia Christ. in 1966. Yes. Wow. 
So Ida Lupino did, uh, what was it, Trouble with Angels in 1966. So this is 71. So there's five years, no women directing anything for studios. And so that's kind of crazy in and of itself. And, and I know it was a struggle for her. They, they paid her the same uh, money to do directing, co-starring, and... Uh, and like, it was a really rough post. Yeah. I, I've never... You've never seen a movie with that many mistakes. And it was really... Uh, they, I, my editor was a really nice man who had a drug problem. <laughs> and the first cut he did, if you really want to know, the first cut he did, he did flash forwards so that I would watch the scene and then there would be a piece of the next scene in it. He'd never edited, it was his first movie. And I said, there's a piece of the next scene in this. And he said, it's a flash forward. And there was nothing I could, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I, I fortunately, he, he owed, take, he didn't OD, but he took too many drugs and left. And the apprentices and I sort of took out the flash forwards and put it together. But I did, because the story was so good, and because the actors, the cast that I had were, were my, they were my people. And because I had Anthea Silbert and some, and I was smart enough, I, the crew was not very good, but I hired Dee Dee Ryan. I, had, I took some people who, I said, you know, teach me about Rich. And I managed to learn on that movie while shooting it. I made so many mistakes that I actually learned a little bit about how to do a movie. I didn't learn. I had such a good focus puller on that movie that I didn't know there was such a thing as focus till the next movie. I mean, I, I, because the, the, there's no way to know unless you, somebody teaches you or you screw up. And when you start a movie by somebody saying, well, you, you can't, you know, pick a director, but you can direct it, you really start knowing nothing. It was, it was rough. Yeah. But I think, you know, and I think she had some different ideas about how to end the film. I won't go into that, but I still think what's there is a really good movie and, and I think and a quintessential Mathau performance for me. Uh, the other stat that came out in the commentary, which I highly recommend people listen to, pick up the Olive Blu-ray, listen to this commentary. She, the woman there said that in 1979, there was a newly formed uh, women's committee part of the DGA. And they basically did a statistical study, the first one of its kind, about women directing films. From 1949 to 1979, major studios did, what was it, 7,332 feature films were released by major distributors. 14 were directed by women. Elaine May directed three of them. So, you know, that to me is really says something about well, A, just the incredible, you know, off-balance nature of the studio system at that time, and not that it's gotten much better now, but the fact that she made three, and I think three really great films, um, between this and The Heartbreak Kid and then Mikey and Nikki, she's she's incredible. She's one of my favorites. But this is a really incredible debut, a really funny debut, really clever. You can kind of see the stuff she did with Mike Nichols and their sensibility carrying over into this film, and it's it's wonderful. I absolutely love it. Mm. Yeah, no, it's great. New Leaf. Yes. Um, and so my last one here is actually from this year. Okay. And it actually just hit iTunes. Winter Brothers. Winter Brother. It's a brother odyssey set in a worker area during a winter. It's a lack of love story. 
with a focus on the younger brother, Emil, and his want and need to be uh, desired and loved. One, two, three, four. From, you know, when I wake up to uh, go to bed, you know, there's a constant process of working. So I work in different mediums and then uh, sometimes something emerges and uh, sometimes it has, you know, a narrative, something bigger than just uh, a moment. So I just follow that and begin working on it and then slowly it evolves and uh, becomes, uh, for example, with Winter Brothers, a film. You know, I think I'm more truthful if I just express, you know, um, without telling people anything, you know, that I think is important. I think, I think I'm just more truthful if I just express what I find beautiful or brutal or, or, or true. Uh, so I think the narrative is sort of, for me, the narrative was like a branch, you know, and then, you know, there came another branch just suddenly out of the other one. And um, if it felt uh, interesting or if it felt um, exciting, I just follow it. Everything is paradoxical, and I really like that. I think, I think, um, I think the world is very much like that, and I think it's the ambiguity over it, and is something that stimulates me very much, like um, wanting something, but at the same time not wanting it at all. Cinema is a tool of ex experiencing something, um, like I said before, both mentally and physically. So I think these innermost depths are really, there is a way of getting into them, like music or, you know, a composition or, and I think cinema is very, very close to that in a way. It's uh, directed by uh, Heiner Palmason. It's Danish, um, beautifully shot on, on, on 16 millimeter. Um, a brother odyssey set in a, in a worker environment during a cold winter. We follow two brothers, their routines, habits, rituals, and a violent feud that erupts between them and another family. This feud comes from the main brother uh, basically uh, selling his uh, – it's very much like the master. He's, mm. he's, uh, he's selling what bootleg um, liquor. Okay. His own – what do they call it when you have your own moonshine? Moonshine, basically okay. his moonshine, and um, premiered at Locarno. It should, you know, it's it definitely should have gotten more attention. I mean, he won best director at uh, Thessaloniki in Greece, but I mean this this film is gorgeous. Uh, the DP Maria von Hauswolf. I know she has an incredible future ahead of her. I want to work with her. I mean, she's nice. really. I wow. even met her when I went uh, to uh, when I went to Copenhagen and just to, just to pick a brain and mm. and um, uh, just I, I highly recommend it. Hmm. So that's all I can. Oh, Kim Stim, which is that small distributor here in the states, they put it out. Uh -huh. Yeah, I gotta. We gotta make sure we write your ones down, just because some of them are, you know, gonna be harder to remember. <laughs> sure, sure. Because yeah. I need to. I need to see that, and I need to see that boxing film straight away. Yeah, definitely. But uh, this one also is uh, might appeal to some genre fans because it has there. There is a there is a moment of violence that kicks in, mm -hmm. and uh, 
and also it's, it's beautifully shot in this mining town and and the uh and they constantly have this the, the clay on their faces Ooh, and so cool. from a from just a coming from just just looking at their style and their approach uh their production design it's a gorgeous film to watch uh, and, and because I might never get to ask you this on, you're mm. never on Shockwaves, mm. uh, you, I do see that you are a horror fan. Mm. You're just a fan of all genre of cinema in general. Yeah, but I did definitely growing up, I was the Fangoria guy. Okay. You know, I yeah. still have, I think, the first hundred, uh, oh, nice. you know, in, in plastic in my parents' oh. attic, you know. Um, you know it's come back, right, this year? Oh, yeah, I I'm know, sure he's I know. Gonna re-up. It's, it's a lot um, nicer. It's much more of a collector thing now. It's, it's they, great. They did a really that good job. That first issue was oh, great. Yeah. No, but definitely, uh, I'm, so, in, I'm into all films, but I definitely have a love for horror. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, is that something you would ever, like, I mean, because obviously what a horror film is mm. such a broad thing, like, because mm. I think Snowtown mm. could be labeled that, and yet it's... It's right. actually more in line with the kind of movies you make in right. terms of observational. Yeah. But is that something you'd ever? If you, is you know, I would love to, to, but it would have to be like you know, just the best script ever. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, if it's not on the level of a yeah, yeah. Rosemary's Baby or Texas yeah. Chainsaw, I don't <laughs> want to. I, I don't want to touch yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. But um, because yeah. Because they already exist. <laughs> Maybe someday if I can yeah, yeah. find the right That'd script. That'd be cool. Yeah, That'd be right, interesting. Cool. Um, yeah, the, the the last one on my list is is actually the debut that had the biggest impact on me. Um, both in, I just started wanting to make films, and I was working at a theater down in uh, Irvine, and uh, Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher played. And oh, I thought I was... about this one. Where are you going? Piss off! I'm telling my man you. Can do what I like. It's a free country. What? There's no way you're getting on this bus with me. Go on home, beat it. Have you got a boyfriend? It's none of your business. Stay on your knees, man. I'm pure black. No, you're not. Look, go on home. You're not getting on this bus with me. Tell us where you're gone. No, no, tell me nothing. I'm particularly inspired by uh, photography, stills photography, because you know it's you know basically you're capturing a detail in a person that says something about their whole whole world at times. So within a still, there can be a lot of narratives, and I find that quite inspiring because sometimes when you even look at a still, it gives you lots of ideas. You know what's going on outside the frame, what's going on in this person's head. You know what does that what, what does their look say about them? You know. What is filming a close-up instead of filming a wide shot, say, you know? So, um, yeah, I find it quite inspiring in terms of narratives, I guess, as well, you know? Although instills are captured within a single image in, in film, it's really in the editing that, you know, that you make your journey. Because I had no experience in film at all, I really hadn't thought about what I wanted to do when I was at film school, so I applied in cinematography because I thought, yeah, well, I can shoot stuff, I think. I can light stuff. And then the minute I got there, I knew I was on the wrong course because because in, when I was doing photography, it was my ideas. I edited my pictures and, and stuff like that, so I knew I wanted to make my own work. But it's very difficult to change when you're at film school. You know, a lot of people spend years applying for the director course. It's very popular. Um, but I, they, I complained a lot at film school. <laughs> And was basically a pain in the ass, you know, until um, they gave me some money, you know, like a little bit of money to make my own film. Um, and that went, went on to go to Cannes, so that's how it all started, you know. What I found funny about film schools, I don't think you need to go to film school to become a filmmaker at all, but um, they really encourage collaboration. Uh, 
but everyone was so com competitive and nobody really did collaborate and yet when I left it was it became a very collaborative thing for me you know um, and I worked with a lot of people I, I'd worked with at film school. Derek Jarman once says that um, he came to film school and I remember you know really taking this on board and he goes why why work with your enemies I mean you may as well work with your friends I mean like film's hard enough you know and, I, and that's the kind of relationships I have with them you know they're they're friends you know. Oh, yeah. I was utterly mesmerized spellbound um, of Scottish I I being from New Zealand did not need subtitles Americans uh, who all crave <laughs> Scottish every time I see Scottish films like that and know by mouth I'm like yeah no I get it <laughs> I don't need this but uh, this film's it, it's it's you know obviously there's some I, I wrote down a few films that like including reflecting so you know Killer of Sheep Reflecting Skin, Kez, and um, Bill Douglas's uh, short films, which he's also a great Scottish. I think I meant, mentioned him on our Life Cycle episode. Uh, it's definitely coming from the lineage of all those films, uh, especially Kes, uh, obviously. But Kes is uh, less lyrical in a lot of ways. Like more, yeah, yeah. I know you're a fan of his his work, um, but also just you know, there's no way she couldn't have been affected by mm. that in mm. in the UK. Um, this film it just finds like lyricism in some of the bleakest things, and it and it really is continually surprising. I just watched it again for the first time, maybe since that screening. So that screening had such a big impact. It's not on Blu-ray. I've never understood that. It's just yeah. a DVD from Criterion. Mm. Um, but it, it really it's it's still held up. It's you know set in a um, you know kind of housing terrible housing complex where all the trash bags are outside and the yeah. kids play in the trash. It was during the. It takes place during the strike, right? Yeah. Where where the, no one was coming to get rid of the trash. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why the rats are yeah. infesting, and it's right on a canal, and it just it just you know it just seems like the most awful place and kids are you know coming in and out of houses and mm. it just feels so chaotic mm. the world it sets up mm. but it's very it's one of the best films to show a, a young person's point of view you know and rich does tie to your work i think because that's another thing that you know you just did so well uh, in your last film and, and it's yes. obviously a hard mm. thing to do right uh to, because you have to as a i have as a director you also have to be able to remember that you can't just rely mm. on your actor to remember what it was like i imagine you know right right, right. um but the, she 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 was she must have been pretty young when she made that. I know she was right mm. out of the London Film School. Um, and it basically, the kid in the opening scene, you, you actually start with a different child who's getting his shoes put on by his mom and they, they start walking down the street. They're going to, their dad's getting out of jail. They're going to go visit him. And then the boy just runs away because he wants to go play. And he goes to play with, uh, with the character who becomes the, the eyes of the film. And uh, the, the first character, it's not really a spoiler because it's the first few minutes and it's kind of the hook of the film. Uh, they're kind of a roughhousing and the other boy drowns. And the canal and and the and the key character doesn't do anything to stop it. He's he's complicit. I wouldn't call him a murderer in the situation. It's very complicated. But he is such a sensitive character that you then watch this film play out through a mixture of his guilt. He's trying to fit in with older boys. He's trying to. There's an older girl who is picked on by the local bullies, and he, they have these just tender moments. It's just. It's just some of the most incredible. It's it's hard to say, and I, I don't want to get gender politics. But if, I feel like if a man had directed, a there's a couple scenes between these two kids. If a, if a male had directed, it probably would be seen as pornography or something oh, ridiculous yeah. because there's a lot of nudity of these two young kids, mm -hmm. and yet it feels so real and so, you know, it, it just feels earned that you're glad it exists, that you're allowed to still show certain moments because it's not about sex. Mm -hmm. It's not about sexualizing their bodies. It's about them experiencing each other. Yeah in a very innocent way, like young people can. It's a hard thing to put on film because mm. 
it makes it literal. But uh, in this film, it, it, she really just has an ability to create these scenes. And, and it even does some really wacky stuff. There's a really wacky dream scene about what happens to a mouse in the middle of this movie that completely works and mm. shouldn't work in the context of the kind of film it is. Oh, yeah. I forgot you know, it's about totally just, Watching it again this yeah. time, I was like, whoa. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't remember that at all right now. No, it's it's not. It's totally stylized scene. And it's and, and yet when you come back into it, you go, no, it worked, you mm. know. Mm. Uh, but it, it's really – and I, I do mention reflecting skin because aesthetically it has these the long oh. when when he goes to the other housing complex mm. he basically one day gets on a bus and goes to the end of the line, this kid in, uh, in Ratcatcher. And when he gets to the end of the line, he sees these new housing complexes that are being built, and they're surrounded by beautiful, um, what are, what are, what are, kind of tall grass. Okay. And it's so different than the urban environment he lives in. He just walks around this house, and he uses a, a toilet that isn't even plugged in, and you see the pee kind of go around the edge. And <laughs> it's, but he's like, you realize, oh, this is utopia for this character. Um, and it looks so much uh, like the reflecting skin, the, the setting of the reflecting oh, okay. skin. So I have no idea if she ever saw that film, but the two really kind of have a nice yeah. symmetry. Uh, it's, it, it holds up as, I mean, we're going to be doing our top 10 films of the year and she's going to have a film very high on my right. uh, film this year. You know, there's a couple scenes in that that I, are my favorite scenes of the year. And so it's, you know, she hasn't made enough movies. Mm. Obviously she's had a, you know, it's been harder on some of the productions for her and losing Lovely Bones I think was a, a shame. That would have been interesting. But mm. this movie, top, top of the list for me of, you know, somebody saying this is what I want to show you right. about the world that you wouldn't not see anywhere else. Yeah. Kind of like Killer Sheep, you right. could not see that vision of right. that place and time. Yeah, it's yeah. a great film. And you mentioned Nail by Mouth. Oh yeah. Now that's that's, that's a really that's an, a wonderful debut. Yeah, yeah. And it's his only film. Yeah, Gary Oldman. And they're deeply personal. You're right. I mean, because I guess he was saying he was a. I mean, he was an addict by he the age of like twelve, right? Because his dad was such yeah. a drunk. And yeah. They lived above a bar or something. Yeah. It's, and it's absolutely sod all to do with life. It's movies imitating movies, imitating movies, imitating movies, you know? And, and there's a lot of other wonderful filmmakers, Rossellini, Pasolini, Godard, Truffaut, Cassavetes, you know? And I just got sick of seeing it. That, that trend, I thought, when's someone actually going to make a movie that's really take the gloves off and get honest with it, you know? I'm a recovering alcoholic. My father died of it, and I know a lot of people who have been really, really damaged and destroyed their lives and are dead from it, you know? And as much as, in a way, I, I enjoyed the cinematic experience of leaving Las Vegas, I can't say I really believed a great deal of it, because, bottom line, you're not that charming, you stink, and you bleed from your asshole when you drink like that, you know? And... and so I got just a little, uh, it was, Neil by Mouth is, you know, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it was a movie that I wanted to see, and that's why I made it. I wanted to, I wanted to see something that was from, from your heart. I met him in uh, Toronto at, at TIFF, and it was, and I thought I was over being starstruck. <laughs> you know, like back in the day when I met Spike Lee, I could hardly even, it was just like, Hello, you know, just went <laughs> yeah. into full-on stutters. I understand. I thought that was—I thought I was past that. Yeah. But I, um, I was with little Brooklyn Prince from Florida Project, and he was—he came into the room because he was uh, promoting The Darkest Hour, and Brooklyn walks right up to him yeah. and starts having a conversation, and I walk over and I. I couldn't even, I was so nervous. Oh, and she goes, Sean, you're nervous, like right in front of him. And I go, yes, I am nervous, I guess. Uh, but uh, Mr. Oldman, um, 
I love No By Mouth so much. And uh, when is there going to be a Blu-ray? And he's like, right. When is there going to be a Blu-ray? Oh, he's no. like, yeah, we're waiting for that. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh. It deserves it. Yeah, yeah well, no, a movie sure. I almost put on this list, uh, another debut was Scum. Oh, um, yeah. And because Alan Clark. That's a wonderful debut. Well, and, and because that's Ray Winston's mm. first mm. big role. I mean, he was obviously, and he's just so good in No yeah. By Mouth. And then Gary Oldman's in The Firm the by firm, Alan Clark, yeah. which is also just a brutal. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I agree. I think tough. Gary Oldman's one of the great screen actors but truly yeah truly great yeah but no by mouth yeah people haven't seen that and then um just one last connector there i think tim roth's first film uh which is which i think i mentioned it briefly on the the family it's uh, colin farrell what is that one called the um it's it feels like an ian McEwan. um uh, Tim Roth is it was right around the same time. I don't know why. The just, Mike Lee film? No, Tim Roth directed his <gasps> oh that crazy know. family drama, and that's got uh, Ray Winston as well. And it's kind of all about uh, incest, and it's almost as hard hitting as No By Mouth, and no one talks about that movie. So like, mm, it's I like didn't even blip. know he directed a film. Quite uh, honestly, oh, yeah, Brian will find us the title on, online, yeah. Yeah, and it's it. it's it, you put it on the top of your list because you will appreciate it. A lot of people I won't because I it don't was. No, uh, it. I think it's Colin Farrell's first role. He's like a War Zone. War Zone. The Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Do you remember? I do know of oh, it. No. Yeah, just, it's one I know of, but I haven't seen. Hard hit. It might be too hard hitting for most people because you know when you have incest angle. But again, Ray Winstone. I remember seeing it quite close to No by Mouth and going, "Who is this guy?" And then we've been talking about Sexy Beast all this time. So yeah, it's nice to give these th- all this lineage of <laughs> exciting, hard hitting British films uh, some love. It looks like it's on Prime. So nice. Cool. Yeah, let me know if you if you see. I'd be curious to hear. It's I mean, because again, some of these guys really show a, a talent for directing. Mm. Then never make mm. another film, right? Yeah. Well, Ratcatcher was a great choice. So that was this close to being on my list. So right. I'm so glad you brought it up. Really Such a incredible, assured. Uh, movie that totally shows me a world that I, I don't think I've seen duplicated. Again, the reflecting skin connection is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But really one where I was like, wow, I just haven't seen anything like this. And a good double feature with the Florida Project. <laughs> Very interesting. That's <laughs> a good thought. Arcas. <laughs> yeah, we watched all of those films mm. for in Florida? preparation for yeah. Florida. We yeah. went back and watched uh, moments of Ratcatcher. We didn't yeah. watch the whole thing. We 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 revisited, you know, Kess. You know, it's just so many. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, Panette. Is it Ponette oh. or Poulette? Ponette. Ponette. Yeah, I know what you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You, I, this, I'm just curious. Are you a Dardenne fan? Oh, big time. Okay. Yeah, I'd have to big assume time. so. But I, it's yeah. not like I see it in your style, but just yeah. their interest and the focus on If you look thing. at Prince of Broadway and mm-hmm. Takeout, you see way more of a okay. Dardenne influence. Yeah. Very neat. Very cool. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to close it out with a movie that I have talked about, but again, not for a long time, on one of the cult movies episodes, I think. Uh, and it's Peter Bogdanovich's Targets from 1968. Oh, yeah. What did you do with my script? Oh, I don't know. It's over there someplace. I wrote a hell of a picture for you. For you as you really are. Uh, a tired old man. Oh, no. This was last week when you still had some guts. Days to convince Marshall. A work of art. You should have heard him when he first, when he first read it. I don't know. I don't understand it. You sit still for three lousy, terrible, lousy scripts we did, and finally, you know, I come up with something good, and you quit. I haven't even read the damn thing. Well, why not? God, Jesus, it's hot in here. Sorry, I... I guess I feel the cold a little more than I did. Open the window. No, it's all right. What's it all about? What? 
Everybody's dead. I feel like a dinosaur. Oh, I know how people think of me these days. Old-fashioned, outmoded. Well, not after this picture, they wouldn't. You can't change your whole lifetime with one picture. What have you got if you quit? Oh, Sammy, what's the use? Mr. Boogeyman, King of Blood, they used to call me. Marx Brothers make you laugh, Garbo makes you weep, Orlock makes you scream. <laughs> and once I thought I'd be an actor, oh, it's not that the films are bad. I've got bad. I couldn't even play a straight part decently anymore. I've been doing the other thing too long. Of course you could. And even that isn't the point. You know what they call my films today? Camp. High camp. Wait a minute, I want to show you something. My kind of horror isn't horror anymore. There they are. Look at that. No one's afraid of a painted monster. The only thing you've said that's right is about this. Which is why you ought to do my movie. <laughs> you don't play some phony Victorian heavy. You play a human being and you could play the hell out of it. If I were your age, I'd play it myself. And go offer it to Vincent Price. And I thought, if Karloff's in the movie, maybe he could be an actor. And maybe he could be an actor who wants to quit because his kind of horror, this kind of Victorian horror stuff, was pretty old-fashioned compared to somebody who goes to a tower and just randomly picks people up. That was modern horror. And that's how the picture, that's how it started. We thought maybe we'd tell two stories. And since we only had Karloff for two days, we thought, well, that'll make his story shorter and easier to shoot because we can cross-cut between the two stories. And that was how it started. Well, Polly and I worked out the story, and then I wrote the screenplay. And then I showed it to a friend of mine who was a veteran director, uh, Samuel Fuller. And uh, in about two and a half hours, pacing back and forth, he basically rewrote the script, giving me the most extraordinary ideas. I said, Jesus, Sammy, this is fantastic. I've got to give you credit for this. He said, if you give me credit, they'll think I did the whole thing. I said, well, you practically did. He said, no, 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 no credit, kid, no credit. That's how generous he was. No credit, no money, just a favor. It's a tough one because there's part of me that's like, well, maybe, uh, you know, it's not necessarily appropriate to bring it up right now, but I actually think it's more appropriate than ever to bring it up right now. It's, it's a tough movie because it's about a sniper, uh, and obviously we're dealing with a lot of... Uh, a lot of that activity now that's just so alarming and terrifying and horrifying, which is actually part of the focus of the movie. I and mean, the movie deals not only with this sniper, but it also deals with an aging horror actor played by Boris Karloff and how he is yes. in, in some ways saying, like, what I do is not really horror. This is horror. And they're actually looking at a newspaper headline and the character is based on Charles Whitman, the sniper and everything like that, which was, I mean, that's basically a fresh mass shooting from about two years prior to the movie coming out and that was one of the first of that kind of thing so it's almost like a movie that's examining ground zero of what we're dealing with right now um and it's it's really powerful stuff uh it was a movie where roger corman had a a few days that were owed to him by karloff and he basically had worked with bogdanovich on the wild angels and he said you know would you want to direct something i have two days owed me by boris karloff and I don't know if it was part of the deal, but they basically had to use footage from The Terror, which is another oh, yeah. Corman oh, yes. movie. Um, 
But it was funny listening to the commentary. Bogdanovich was talking about how the movie sort of spawned out of the idea of a joke, which was basically that, you know, they'd show the the end of the terror and the lights would come up and Boris Karloff would turn to Roger Corman and say, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. And that <laughs> kind of, beca- yeah. <laughs> and, Can you name all the directors? That's the real uh, joke. That Ma- should be a Monty's trivia. one of them, right? We got Monty Hellman. Uh, yeah. Jack Hill. Francis Ford Coppola, Nicholson, Jack Nicholson, <laughs> and Roger Corman. Oh my and, God. And it was a five-day film and five directions. Oh, <laughs> dude, that movie's a mess. I, my, one of my dreams years ago was to imagine getting them all to sign up. <laughs> now we've now I've, uh, I've lost that. Uh, Coppola, Coppola's one of them. Yeah, but um, so but yeah, but so anyway, uh, not only does he get Boris Karloff, but he also gets Sam Fuller to help him out. Sam Fuller basically, mm. you know, Bogdanovich sort of had the idea for the story, but apparently the story is that. Bogdan, uh, Bogdanovich had Sam Fuller in a room with him for three hours and they basically banged out what is the structure of the movie uh, that we see today. And there's definitely Fuller in there. You can feel it. But this is just this really neat juxtaposition of an aging horror actor. Again, Karloff kind of playing a version of himself, although Bogdanovich said that Karloff would never have wanted to retire. This guy is at a point where he wants to retire. He's playing a character named Byron Orlock, who is very much himself. And they actually use footage of the terror, obviously, and then the criminal code by... Howard Hawks, which is, I always like it when an actor plays an actor and you can use their real footage of real, real movies in your movie. I think that's neat. They um, just did it with uh, Old Man and the Gun. Oh, really? Yeah, Lowry oh, cut back to, uh, I think it was Redford in The Chase, I think. Oh, that's cool. Wait, not The Chase. No, he isn't in The Chase. No, that's no, right. Brandon. <laughs> well, now i got to look it up. Oh, uh, I forgot. What they I'll have to look it up to see which movie it is, but I love, I love that. And then he did it with the Limey, where they use Poor Cow, and that's actually like a oh, narrative, yeah. Yeah, not even right. looking at a movie. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but this movie really is striking to me in, in the way that it's still relevant and it's incredibly well made and it just has this, I don't know, it has an energy about it that it, that I feel like Bogdanovich is just getting started. You know, he's going to do uh, The Last Picture Show and he's going to do, you know, Paper Moon. He's going to make those great films, but this is the beginning. This is the start for him and it it's really assured and Karloff is great, and it's one of those opportunities you get to see him play something that's not... And not I love him. I love him in all his stuff, but he doesn't have enough dramatic roles, and this is one that's tailored to kind of where he was at, whether it's autobiographical or not. I think he does a great job with it. Sammy, this is dull, deadly dull. It's going to be my last appearance, and I'd like to do something that... Yeah. Hey, what are you cats talking about? Why don't you tell them a story? You know, a few scary stories. Yes, I might perhaps do that, yes. Well, what's taking you so long? Hey, you know what they're doing, ma'am. Well, now, let me think. I think I know a short one that might do. Let's hear it. Yeah. But what about these questions? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'd like to leave you with a little story to think about as you drive home through the darkness. Once upon a time, Many years ago, there should be a pin spot where I see on my face as I'm talking. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, a rich merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the marketplace to buy provisions. And after a while, the servant came back, white-faced and trembling, and said, Master, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and I turned to look. And I saw that it was death that had jostled me. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Oh, master, please lend me your horse that I may ride away from this city and escape my fate. I will ride to Samara, and death will not find me there. 
So the merchant loaned him the horse, and the servant mounted it, and dug his spurs into its flank, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he rode towards Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace, and he saw Death standing in the crowd, and he said to her, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And Death said, I made no threatening gesture. That was, that was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad. For I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Bogdanovich himself is in the movie. Um, that's a little iffier, but he's fine. But the way that the two storylines intersect and end up at a drive-in theater... Uh, I won't go any further than that, but it's it's really neat to see how they come together, and it, and it works really well to this day. There's no Blu-ray of it right now. It's available on Amazon and on DVD. I don't know if they're going to put out a Blu-ray right now. I, I would imagine that any company that did would get a little heat for it probably, but I think, like I said, now is, is the perfect time to examine it. Speaking of another one that's very similar in terms of theme, and which has, uh, you know, the Heathers... Which was an amazing debut. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I forget that's that. That's a debut. Yeah, that's an debut. We've had Dan Waters on the show back in the Oh, We did cool, a high school cool. episode with Dan Waters. He's so. a great guy, yeah. So great. But Heather's was going to be a television show. And they just no. pulled the plug. Wow. Obviously. That's crazy. That's right. Yeah, no, it's a, another really assured, you know, beginning for so great filming. Uh, to close out, that's all our debuts. So uh, qu- this is just quick hard for you. Favorite sophomore film? Oh, sophomore Jesus. film? <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer is Magnificent Ambersons. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I like Rushmore as a sophomore. Uh, That's a big one yeah. for me. Off the top of my head. But if I thought about it, I'm sure I could come up with 100. Well, actually, I was going to... I thought the Texas Chainsaw was Toby Hooper's first. That's right, yeah. That's and I looked it up, and I realized it wasn't. So eggshells. that would right. be... That's a pretty great sophomore. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've still never seen Eggshells, but yeah, Texas Chainsaw yeah. is incredible. Uh, seriously, thank you for coming in. It's yeah, oh, thanks for really having really me. Appreciate and, it, Sean. We're gonna I appreciate I've been traveling combat. a lot, a little jet lag, so excuse me if I wasn't so articulate in moments. But uh, <laughs> but again, thanks for having me on, and uh, I'm a big fan of this podcast. Oh, and, you're too uh, kind. Happy to be here. And we're gonna, we're gonna, so one thing you he signed on to do, we are going to go... Help Razor by Hellraiser film, and we're gonna we're gonna do our own commentaries as a group. <laughs> when you're back from your trip, though, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna do that in one day, right? Oh, can oh. I mention something? Oh yeah, of course. Um, I think you guys would be into this, okay. and, and I think your listeners would be. There's this great website that I've found that I'm almost I almost don't want to give it out because uh, oh, I, I just a, saw it, and, I, and yeah. I'm, I'm, it's on my phone right now because I've been going through them because they have a sale. You know, right? I know exactly what you're talking WestgateGallery.com. about. WestgateGallery.com. Yeah. It's a poster. You know, they sell posters, vintage posters, uh, mostly genre stuff, yeah. uh, mostly foreign versions yeah. of, Ooh. you know, so you get That's all, like, stuff. if you're into, you know, Italian uh, spaghetti westerns or giallo. They have the original Italian posters wow. imported, um, and even they, golden age porn. Oh, it's, and it's great! It's like it's, it's, it's a real deep dive. I think yeah. it's LA based. It's LA based. But right now, it's like I, I was just looking because they sometimes they'll pop up on Twitter and be like fifty percent off right now. Yeah, well, right now they have this Christmas sale thing, which is incredible. And if you're if you're a cinephile, especially if you're into that sort of like you know the '70s genre stuff, you are just going to blow your 
income. <laughs> <laughs> and you should see the Enzio uh, Schiotti uh, version of the Starlet poster. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I, w- I wish we had that. That would be pretty right, great. Right, right, right. <laughs> that would be itself. amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But actually, yeah, the, the, he does. I, he does actually have some of my posters. Oh, in his oh shop, so. nice. Oh, okay, that's cool. Very, no, that's pretty, are there any cool foreign versions of your poster? Uh, like uh, you know what? I there are there are some. I think it's the uh, the Korean Florida project is awesome. Mm. It's so different. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else? I I think some of the tangerine ones overseas were yeah. were very cool. And there was that starlet one that was like hand drawn. No, there was uh, a starlet one in which she is smoking a cigarette uh, that we had for our South by pretty. South. Yeah, that's for our South by South uh, West premiere, mm-hmm. and it got turned down. By music box films because they didn't want to show anybody smoking. But I'm like, I'm not having. There's a film. There's yeah. a character smoking, and I think it's actually a really beautiful poster. Yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, no. There, I've, I've been very happy with some of the foreign ones. Very cool. cool. Well, yeah. Good luck with the whatever the next film is. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully, we'll lure you onto the New Beverly Calendar episode at some point because yeah. we know your film when you're back in town. Cool. Uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.